people go to block, it's like this bowing motion, right? They start high and then they just push straight down like they're bowing. When really the cross court block is taking that shoulder and penetrating across the net. And the ball is gonna start high where they're contacting it, but as it starts to move diagonally, it's get low, gets lower and lower. It's only crossing the net by inches. Yeah. So there's no reason to be reaching up with that inside hand because that's not where the, that hand's gonna meet the ball. And oftentimes you see people get hit under mm-hmm. yeah. because they're acting <clears throat> like the block is one unit. What's up, Alex here. Welcome back to the Learn Beach Wall Fast podcast and welcome back to the monster four and a half hour uh, interview with two-time Olympic medal coach Steve Anderson. So I don't know, there's not too much to say in this intro except that I'm happy you're here. Maybe you did listen to me when I said in the first episode that you have to make sure to listen to this whole interview because it's amazing. And <laughs> uh, I, I should just repeat that and, and again tell you that you should listen to all of this. I can't tell you if the second part, which you're going to listen to now, is better than the first or not. There is slightly different in this one. We talk maybe a little bit more about certain techniques of the game. Uh, but yeah, the, both of the parts are just amazing. So what I'll do in this part is I'll just replay like 30 seconds of the conversation where I cut it off from the first part, just so that you get back into the groove of the conversation and then I'll let it roll from there. All right, so let's get going. But so when we go, when one part of the game is suffering, focus on the other parts that you know you can do and do those well. And then what starts to happen is, because you build on success, the other part frees up and comes back online. Mm-hmm. Even if it doesn't come back online, at least you're not losing points in all these other areas. But what usually what you see is one part's failing, and now I can't play at all. Mm-hmm. Now the passing starts because you're allocating resources to worry and stress, and now I can't. Now I'm just gonna pass. Now look, everything's going wrong. How can no? Or I'm tired and I'm jumping this low, you know, like two inches lower than I normally do. Now I can't hit the ball. Every ball's in the tape. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. You're hitting the ball a meter over the net, you know, half a meter over the net. And now you can't jump two inches. And now your, your, your hit drops. That much. That yeah. much? That's not, that's how you feel. Oh, I don't feel well. So now I can't perform well. That's not true. It's not true. So just really focusing on that. And, and I use confidence and certainty. Confidence requires you requires most people, unless you're narcissistic or psycho or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But it it requires you to have some good things happen. Uh Most people can't have a series of bad things happen and still feel confident. Mm -hmm. They start to question themselves or something. But certainty is um, your bottom, for me, for sport, it's your bottom performance that you can trust. So if my bottom performance is, I know that if I'm standing on the court and I'm cross court and someone hits a ball in my vicinity, I can dig seven out of those 10 balls. Mm -hmm. I can be sick, I can be tired, I didn't have to sleep well, I can have family issues. If you hit 10 balls at me cross court, I'm gonna dig minimum seven of them. If I'm really feeling it and everything, I'm gonna dig all 10 or 
nine or I'm going to make one up and dig 11 of them. I'm going to dig one backwards. You know, that's, but my bottom performance, I'm not going to go down to three. I'm not going to shank seven balls just because I'm tired or I'm not, I've got my back's hurting. I'm going to dig minimum seven of those balls because of my technique, my experience, my cue reading, everything I've trained. If you hit the ball in this area, I can trust that's my bottom performance. So the goal is to get your bottom performance to be a reasonable performance. Mm -hmm. So now I know where all my bottom performances are. That's certainty. I don't have to feel good. I don't have to sleep well. I know I'm going to be able to perform these skills at this level. And then what happens? I perform skills at those levels. Some start to peak. And I start to get some confidence because I start to get some results in a row. Now the confidence comes on board, all the chemicals come on board, boom, now we're flying way up here. Mm -hmm. But if I depend on confidence, I'm way up here, I'm flying because I just made a block and now, and now, oops, I shanked the ball and, oh, my partner did this and two or three plays later, now I'm in the toilet. Yeah, yeah. And it affects all my other skills because I don't feel well. Oh, I'm not playing well right now. Oh, see, there I go, I shanked another ball. Oh, I doubled on that one. Oh, man, everything's going horrible. Oh, I got a good kill. You know, oh, yeah, they shanked it. Okay, ooh, where's an ace? Like, like a roller coaster. So for me, confidence enhances certainty. Certainty is the foundation. Mm -hmm. You don't make the foundation confidence because confidence comes and goes. Could be one play, could be three. Mm -hmm. But most people can't maintain uh, feeling good, thinking positive thoughts when they have more than two or three bad things happening in a row. Mm -hmm. How resilient are you? You might be able to do three or four. Mm -hmm. What happens if three or four bad things happen? Then it's too much. Yeah. So, so this certainty then is the way to practice that? Is it to deliberately put yourself in super shitty situations, don't sleep, get stressed out, blah, 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 be angry, and still learn to play volleyball in those states? Is that how to get your... I don't think so. Not that is extreme. <laughs> it could work. But I don't think that's necessary. I think that you build... Like for me, I close my eyes. Uh -huh. I do things that let me know that I can do this. Um, one thing I really like to do with attack... I really like to disadvantage the hitter. So we'll use a double block or a triple block. Um, we'll, uh, you have to hit the first ball in a certain area. It has to be cross court or it has to be line. And, uh, and the defense can cheat. They know where you're going, so they can cheat. They can do whatever they want to do. So what ends up happening, or you might split the court in half. So mm -hmm. we have the half court. They have the whole court to hit into. You can only hit into this half court. Mm -hmm. So you're totally disadvantaged. Or you can't use your favorite plays. You can only use these plays. Uh, and then your brain goes to, well, I'm at a disadvantage. This is unfair. <clears throat> We've got to get rid of that. The unfair thing is competition. It doesn't have to be fair. You start, in, oh, that's fair. Oh, the referee cheated. They made a call. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. Argue it. Do whatever you want. But don't carry that into the next point. Get rid of that. Um, so what ends up happening is you have to score the ball on the line. And you got two blockers and a defender. So what happens? You go up. You hit a line shot. They dig it. It's too easy. You go and you try to blast one through. Double block. Boom. Thank you. 
Then you go up and you figure it out. Oh, can out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to do that every time. Why not? Because then they're going to figure it out or? Figure what out? I'm hitting the outside hand out of bounds. What are you going to figure out? Figure out that the ball's going out faster? <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> or they pulled it hands down or. Okay, great. Pull your hands down. Bang! You get my, my so what ends up happening is you, instead of making up excuses, feeling bad, all that other stuff, you just get the simple solution that works. You don't mess with it. So there's a solution that works. I can get a hit. I'm going to hit something down the line. Maybe the guy shanks it. Okay, great. But out of 10, out of 5, how many are they going to shank? Mm-hmm. Off the hands is a great solution, and beach followers don't like to wipe. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. They feel like they have to hit the court. So you think that's an underused and developed skill? Completely. Because here's the problem. You got some big blocks, you got an antenna, and you got eight meter court. Mm-hmm. The hitter doesn't have great advantages always, especially uh, some of the defensive players, if they're small or whatever. You got some big blocks against some good defenders. Shots are not the solution. Mm-hmm. You have to have a wipe in your game. Mm-hmm. If you have a wipe in your game, who cares how big they are? True. And what does it do for you? You stay powerful. You feel like you can hit. The defender has to respect that you're going to use power. Even if you win them all with shots, now the defender's in chase mode. Mm-hmm. You're giving them an opportunity. They don't respect your power. Mm-hmm. So the, the first goal for hitting for me is respect. You have to know that you can't pull and that I have the ability to hit the ball with power to score a kill. Mm-hmm. And now you got to do the correct thing. One person has to block, one has to play defense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you have to have respect. And people hit for all sorts of other reasons, ego and all that sort of stuff. I say the first thing is respect. If you're picking the wrong hits and you're getting blocked and dug, they don't respect you. Mm-hmm. They don't respect you. Because at some point it comes down to strategy. If someone's making these plays and you're defending it all the time, what do you think about them? You're like, you don't even know what play to hit. Mm-hmm. You're just up swinging away and here I am digging you. You know, it's yeah. just like you start to have contempt for them almost. Like yeah. beach volleyball smarter. You're not even strategic, man. How are you playing with, you know, all these little crazy conversations. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you, you earn is respect. And once you have respect, now they don't, they're not quite sure you have some options, right? And now if you can back that power up and i don't think you need a lot of power to win i just think you need the respect of power mm-hmm. and then you can these other options now now i have to overcommit. i can't just stay here and run down your play or leave late that's a quality play so if i want that play if you have the sharp shots sharp shots the little small shots the jumbo mm-hmm. just a variation what I call zero challenge. I'm moving this way. You see it. You hit it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm standing too far over here. You hit it there. Now the line shots, the classic one for me. Um, Ken Steff has kind of created this play, I think, uh, from my experience. This high line shot that, like on the eight meter court, at six meters, it's still above the head and out of the reach of the defender, and then it comes down. Okay. And people hit their shots so uh, they don't. They hit their line shots shallow, where it's on the ground at six meters, 
So the person running across the court can lay down. They're on the ground mm -hmm. and the ball's on their hand. If that ball's still high at six meters, going all the way back to seven and a half plus meters, you can't lay down. Mm -hmm. You have to get that ball higher. Well, you can't get it higher. The only way to get it higher is to get over sooner so you can be standing up because you because it's at a yeah, high yeah. level, not a low level. So well, basically, you have to be faster as a runner to make it to that shot. Who's that fast? No one. So you have to meet. You have to cheat. You yeah. have to leave early or you have to shift your starting position. As soon as you do that, now you're vulnerable to the cut. Okay. So basically a line shot where you almost try to make it like a box shape, like it's yeah. going flat and then it's dropping in the end. Yeah. Interesting. And, and Ken Steff is, when he's playing with cards, I think he innovated this shot. And what he would do is he'd kind of go up and stick his hand up. He wouldn't use the full, and he'd be like, whack! And it's this really short swing where the ball has lots of topspin and it travels and then drops. Okay. Whereas the more traditional ones had a loop in it, yeah, or they go down, they're like, they're like a kind of a hit or yeah. a so, loop. Yeah, and he came with this flat one, and it only has so much. It wasn't. It didn't have muscle in it. It just had speed. So it would go so far, and then gravity would get it, and the bottom would fall out. Interesting. And with the top spin, so you think about the wind. So lift, you know, like an airplane wing. The bottom of the airplane is flat, or the wing mm -hmm. is flat, the top is curved. Mm -hmm. So the wind is moving slower over the top than the bottom, and you yeah. get lift. Yeah. But when you put top spin on a ball, the air over the top is yeah. faster, yeah. Yeah. you get dropped. Yeah. So, bang! When you put a lot of muscle in it, it's fighting gravity and it stays up in the air. But when you put a lot of rotation on it, but not much muscle, it travels about seven plus meters and drops. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't have enough muscle in it to make it go nine meters, 10 meters. If you overswing on it like a hit, it'll stay in the air. But if you just give it a little whack, mm -hmm. it'll travel about seven meters and drop. Yeah. And it's a really interesting. So for the listeners, when you whack the ball here in, in person, you, you hold the arm quite far up and then it's just a small movement a and small movement. the wrist puts spin on the ball yeah from bottom to top so yeah pop and uh so it goes over the blocker it's still high at six meters and then it's got that last two meters to really get back down to the ground this sounds like sounds like some lost knowledge <laughs> i think so because when he i remember when he when he started doing this play and you know what maybe it's my imagination that that's how he used to hit it it's the way i teach it mm -hmm. and it's very effective but that's that's how I remember seeing him do it, and um, and it was it was it was nine meter court, and he played with cards. And if you go back and you look at that gold medal match, and uh, semi, the semifinal match, uh, if you just go back and watch Kim play, and he's kind of a lost person because um, he left the AVP. Like there was a big issue with him and the AVP, and he left. Um, so I don't, he doesn't get celebrated like a lot of the other. Uh, mm -hmm. He's the original gold medalist, first gold medalist. And when you go back, I wish I could get a uh, a tape of the of the. I think it's the quarterfinal. Between, I think it's the quarterfinal between uh, Karchin Kent and Sinjin and Carl Hinkle, Sinjin Smith and Carl Hinkle. It's one of the best matches I've ever seen. It was incredible, and I think Carl missed an ace by like an inch or so that would have been the match. 
just to serve, just went out right between the two of them. Sinjin was skyballing and it was, it was a crazy match. It was just absolutely crazy. I haven't been able to find it anywhere. You can, you can see the finals and all that kind of stuff, but this, the, the, I think it was the quarterfinal. Quarterfinal of what? 1996 in Atlanta. Uh, Olympics. The Olympics. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, Karch Karai, Ken Staffis, Sinjin Smith, Carl Henkel. This was the battle of the American teams. And Sinjin and Carl represented the FIVB, and Kent and Karch represented the AVP. And it was a big battle between okay. the two. And, uh, and I think that, that match in particular created respect from the AVP to the, uh, to the FIVB. Interesting. Yeah. Let's use the power of the internet and tell the listeners that if you happen to have the link to this match if or you, whatever, yeah. send it our way. If you, have, if you have a link for this, uh, this match, please. What's up, Alex here? So in this episode, I'm going to do a few cut-ins where I'm going to comment some things that we're discussing in the interview. And here's the first one. Basically, I just wanted to say that this quarterfinal match that uh, we are talking about and that we're looking for, I have found it. Uh, so there is video of it. And um, yeah, so I'll just post that in the show notes of this episode and you can go watch it. I will highly recommend it. I do understand why it's a legendary match and why a lot of people are talking about it as basically the maybe the best match that has ever happened. So if you like watching volleyball and uh, want to see a good match, go and check it out. All right, let's get continued. If you have a link for this uh, this match, please, because that was Sinjin makes this crazy dig. Uh, I, I don't know, I can't remember how the ball got to the back line, but he's retreated and he's made this like full layout, and he's on the back line. Look, this one hand dig, and the ball goes all the way to the net, and Carl just goes up and crushes it, and it's like, yeah, I don't remember seeing anything like that. <laughs> It was, it was a heck of a match. And the skyballs and Kent was moving over to take them because Karch was under so much pressure. He mm -hmm. was under so much pressure um, because it was this battle between the AVP and the FIVB. And I think Karch was, was playing a big role in that because um, AVP was trying to do international events, but the FIVB is like, that's us. You can't do it. And then you, how can you tell us what to do? And it was a big battle. I was an AVP member at the time. And the, communication back and forth. It was a big battle. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sinjin left to go play FIVB. He used to play with Brooke Vanderway. He ended up playing with Carl Hinkle. And Karch and Kent uh, were the best team at that time. And uh, Franco and Roberto, the Brazilian team, they were, they were one of the best teams, but Franco ended up hurting himself uh, at the Olympics. So they didn't really, you didn't get to see the best of them. And so it was Carl and Sinjin and who, uh, were really representing the FIVB in that tournament, and uh, it was it was they almost lost, and it was I think they got respect out of that one. They got respect out of that one, and uh, yeah, I mean the U.S. men ended up with uh, they got gold and, and and silver, and the Canadians won the bronze, but the Portuguese guys Maya and Brinha, they ended up fourth two Olympics in a row. Okay. And they were winning this game against uh, against um, Dodd. Was it Dodd and Whitmarsh? Dodd and Hockey. Dodd and Whitmarsh, I think. 
they were they were winning. Yeah, Don Whitmarsh. They were winning. And then unfortunately, um, Whitmarsh was going for a block and came under the net, and and uh, Brenya got uh, taken out, and he wasn't able to really be his full self. And Maya went crazy and like was digging, and what was that? You know, that was could have could have gone either way, man. Could have gone either way, you know. So I think it was uh, it did a it really helped create respect between uh, FIVB and AVP because at that time AVP was the best league in the world. Mm-hmm. It was the best league in the world, and uh, but the FIVB man, they've done a lot for the sport. You know, regardless of politics and what you think about the characters and everything else, oh. it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, the sport has grown. It has. The sport has grown, and now you have world-class players all over. You can't say U.S. and Brazil are the places anymore. Oh, oh. You have to go there to learn. It's not the, it's not the case. No, that's true. Yeah, I don't, I haven't put my mind into enough of that to understand it like there's, I can watch FIVB nowadays and see certain things that I maybe don't like, and I can I can listen to Sandcast and maybe some episodes there have made me understand like what I would like, what what you know what people appreciate with with AVP, for example, uh, certain styles of announcing and, and whatnot that probably the FIVB would be better off if they did that. Yeah. Would be maybe more entertaining for the fans and, and whatnot, but I really don't, uh, I haven't had time to to look into that. There's there's always so many sides to everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, so the lifeblood of the sport to me are the people who, in the communities, mm-hmm. that person who, you know, takes all the kids to practice and coaches and just you know though that's the ones who hold up the sport right that's true yeah and uh you know goes to all the tournaments and you know still mentoring those young kids and uh volunteering and putting on events and you know that's what makes the sport what it is and it's hopefully we can create a, a professional product that rewards people where you can have a job yeah. a career that and this, this is the, the the measurement that I use I have to be able to, to um, create a career for you that you could create for yourself with your college education otherwise it's a sacrifice mm-hmm. you have a family whatever you have a college education I can't ask you to work for $35,000 when you can make $80,000 with your college degree mm-hmm. how's your wife is gonna you know oh, what I mean? Oh. You volunteer your time. So we at least have to have careers where it makes sense for people to choose our sport instead of what people do. They go, okay, I have to stop doing volleyball and I have to go get a real job and do this. Oh. I'd like to get rid of that conversation. I'd like to have real jobs in volleyball. Mm-hmm. So whether it's administration or coaching or an athlete, you can be a full-time athlete on a domestic tour and make as much money as you could with your college education. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, in North America, a lot of volleyball players are college educated. Mm-hmm. So that's where, where the focus is because, you know, we don't have a pro tour, so it's a university. Yeah. But yeah, 
like indoors in Europe and South America and Asia, you can make a living, a good living, maybe a better living playing volleyball than you could if you went and got a job with your college degree. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's not the case with beach. Yeah. You know, but I think it, it could be and should be. You know, so you have your international tour, you have your Olympics, but you have to have a domestic competitions like in Brazil. You have to have domestic competitions that employ coaches and athletes all over the country where young people are inspired because it's a career path. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, this alternative thing that you do and you have to get a job later or it's, it's your career. You build a career out of it mm -hmm. and you coach coaches you have a career you know interesting i'd love to ask you more about that first i need to you know with allocating resources i have this one question in my mind okay. that i need to get out of <laughs> out, out of here so i can yeah. fully <laughs> have my brain access for other things that we're going to discuss yeah. uh okay back to that line shot mm -hmm. uh the back into the seven and a half meter line shot yeah. He gives away with his arm swing that it's a different arm swing, it's a higher one, yeah. that he's going to do it. Yeah. So does that mean that he still had other options to hit the ball in other places of the court with that same arm swing also? So, so you're not fully giving away what you're doing. but This is the way I think of it. Think uh, of a middle hitter. What's the technique a middle hitter uses? They present in their, indoor volleyball? Yeah. I know a little bit too little of that. They get up, they present their hand. And when the ball is, if the ball is set to them, then they can execute the hit. It's the same thing. Presents the hand. You can still swing. It's mm -hmm. not your full swing, but it's beach ball. It's a swing. It's a yeah. powerful swing. You can go line. You turn the wrist. You go cut. Yeah. Like it's so. And here's the thing that I that I find when you go up and you present your hand, what does the defender do? They go. They get on the toes. They lean forward. They're, they're like, you're gonna, you're gonna. It looks like a hit. When you put your hand up and you drop your elbow, or you turn your palm up, they're thinking shot. So as long as your elbow is open, it you have the potential to hit. Yeah. And it, and from the de defensive standpoint, it your cue reads like a hit. It doesn't read like elbow in front. Low shot, shot pot kind of thing. Pokey fingers, yeah. hand turning up. Then you can't swing, right? So, and like I say, and let's say it's seventy-five percent of your power. Mm -hmm. It's still a hit. It's yeah. a reasonable hit. So it's not like you've given up your ability to hit. And here's what I like about it: when you present it like that, if the if the defender commits, all you do is turn your wrist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really easy to make it. It's really easy. So I just. Uh, but the thing about it is, it's it, it's because of the top spin and the drop, it, it travels faster than your loopy line shot. Or at least the perception is it travels faster. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't give, there aren't any cues to read. Because mm -hmm. you know I can turn my wrist, go ahead and start early if you want to. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah but if you don't go, pop, it's gone. It's like... yeah. Just because you have information doesn't mean that it helps you. Yeah. You know, it. Uh, and then once you once you uh, do it a few times and you get a winner, now it just creates more stress. Oh God, here it comes again. Which way is it going this time? And 
Yeah. And then all you gotta do is pop, swing one off. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Yeah. You know, like I say, it may not be what he actually did. And if you ask him, maybe it's, he describes it a different way. That's the way I saw it, mm-hmm. and that's the way I teach it, and that's the and it's very effective. Mm-hmm. And so, whether it's the actual technique or not, the elements are there. Okay. Sent that hand, puts the defense on alert. It's going to be a high contact. Yeah. Uh, the top spin makes it fast. It's very uh, flexible with being able to go the line or cross or jumbo or whatever you want to do. You can still, you know, get a reasonable power ball on it. Uh, the same way you can indoors. Um, so, yeah, it. I think it changed the game. Uh huh. I think it changed the game. And if somebody else did it before him, I don't know who they were because the first person I saw really use that play effectively was him and everybody else line shot, even good ones, they were loopy. What's up, Alex here with the second cut-in. So if you are a beach volleyball nerd similar to me, which I'm guessing you are since you're here listening to this episode, uh, you might be wondering the same thing as me, which is what did it actually look like when Kent did these line shots. So what I did was I went and uh, looked at, found some old videos of him playing and basically compiled some, um, some line shots of him just so that I would be able to see and sort of analyze and see what it looked like and, and see if I agree with what Steve is explaining here. So I did that and then I actually, I was hoping to get a, get a comment from Steve. Uh, you know, I sent him the videos and like, hey, is this what, what you were thinking of uh, or, or is it something else? Uh, I haven't been able to get a hold of him ever since then, unfortunately. And um, hopefully one day he will get back to me. But anyway, I thought that I would put these video examples in the show notes as well so that you can go and watch them and make up your mind. Um, I mean, Steve does say that, you know, this is his way of explaining it and <laughs> someone else might explain it in a different way. I might explain it in a different way. Kent might explain it in a different way. You might end up explaining it in a different way. Uh, depending on what you see on this video uh, or this video clip. So I don't know. I just wanted to provide everyone uh, the maximum resources. And uh, I think providing those video clips or the links to those YouTube uh, video clips is uh, is something that I should do. So that was it. You can find those in the show notes. And if uh, Steve gets back to me and adds into the conversation even more, then I'll put links to links or whatever text or whatever I'll get from him into the show notes as well. All right, now let's continue with the interview again. And if somebody else did it before him, I don't know who they were because the first person I saw really use that play effectively was him and everybody else line shot, even good ones, they were loopy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So there's, um, you're not going to know what I'm talking about here because it's a YouTube video that I made, but for maybe people that are following, so I, I made this video about basically wrist snap, which, which is a very controversial topic in the, there's a lot of coaches that have looked at, you know, the slow motion video, then they say there's no wrist snap, doesn't exist, whatnot, whatnot. So I, I made a video about that where I, basically it's like a wrist flop with a semi-contracted hand and and yesterday so i looked at your video yesterday and i was like fucking shit i just redid your video basically cool (laughs) good yeah good but uh 
so so the way I interpret it is it's possible to full swing with with the stretch over your your core yeah and and do that into a wrist snap yeah and then it's also possible to just do the wrist snap where yeah. it's not really coming from the core you basically yeah. just throw the hand up yeah. and that's basically the technique I teach in this video okay. so, so it's a it's way simpler to learn than than the full body stretch yeah. thing into a wrist snap and you can also do the full body stretch and not really snap yeah uh, so so there's there's a lot of different ways to, to hit the volleyball yeah. <laughs> basically but for me it sounds very much like you're trying to or that you're describing the sort of non-core yeah. driven wrist yeah. snap hit that exactly is a very high high contact and you just basically lift your hand up exactly what you're talking about yeah That's okay exactly it cool. <laughs> there is no there's the, none of the opener it literally is you present your hand so here's the thing so you see my elbows in front it's not back like this right? yeah so here's here's where and i had to discover this for myself because i hurt my shoulder where remember uh, 1986 yeah. And uh, so I had to learn an arm swing that I could do with this shoulder. And I didn't, didn't have surgery or whatever. Uh -huh. And that's where that arm swing came from. Uh, and there's no pressure on your shoulder when you use that arm swing. So this, this other thing, what I, the end part of it is when the elbow's in front, your wrist is cocked. If you do nothing, nothing with your hand, and you just straighten your... Uh, elbow. Yeah, straighten your elbow to where that at some point your arm is facing down. And when that happens, the wrist naturally comes over. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have to do anything. So all I have to do is the hammer. Yeah, yeah. And with the hammer comes the snap. Yeah. And it's in perfect timing, like a golf swing. It's because if I have to manufacture it, you see a lot of people go, do, do the wrist. So, yeah, contract the wrist to, to make a, the wrist snap yeah. rather you, than just relax and let it come as a secondary effect from the exactly. elbow. Exactly. Now, you can do a small, like Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali have this, this, this thing in common where if you watch some old uh, movies of Muhammad Ali shadow boxing, he's got his hands open. Okay. They're not closed, like closed fists. The hands are open. And so the first part of his swing... His, his arms are relaxed. He's, so he can get maximum speed because he's not contracted, mm -hmm. stiff arm. And then at the at the contact, boom, there's a contraction. Okay, he contracts the arm and the, and the hand and everything. Everything. So now you get the full force. You get all that speed, you know, uh, mass times acceleration. Yeah. So you get all of that. And then at the end of it, yeah. you get the hammer. And Bruce Lee's the same sort of way. And if you look at their speed, their speed's incredible because there's no tension in it until they're making impact. Mm -hmm. And that's and both those guys, Muhammad Lee and Bruce Lee, you know, they were just they could hit you hard and they were fast. Uh -huh. And then, so it's the same thing. I look at the same thing uh, for the volleyball swing. Is it's it has structure, the frame, the shape of it, the track is the, where the structure comes from. But there's no tension in it until mm -hmm. until you're making contact now you can do a little contraction to get it started so if you just let your wrist flop it's going to flop but if you give it a little contraction and release like at the ball contact well like starting it like you take a rubber band and you stretch it yeah and then when you let it go wham it snaps forward yeah same thing here mm -hmm. you get it going 
So you get the wrist going from the momentum of the elbow, but then once it starts going, then you add Just a little bit of... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I can't, I can't sway anywhere near where I used to, but I think you get it going and then let it go. So try uh, that. Just try, try starting it and then letting it flop. Like... <laughs> yeah. So listen to this. Listen this to this. This is not going to make sense to listeners. I know, right? We're actually swinging right now. We're swinging right now. So this is interesting because, um, I don't know, at some point, I stopped being able to swing fast. Uh-huh. Um, so think about a sonic boom. Okay. This is mass yeah. times acceleration. So it's not necessarily how hard I can swing and all that sort of stuff. It's this swing just keeps on accelerating. And most of the time when people hit because they want the tension, they decelerate mm-hmm. or there's some sort of deceleration. So with, with, so by loading and just letting it go, starting to let it go, you get this. Mm-hmm. You get that little sonic boom where the air just gets broken. Oh, so you're talking about the sound when you... The sound. Mm-hmm. And what you'll hear, you'll see people who hit, they're very strong and they hit the ball very hard, but it's more like a bat. Yeah, yeah. Which is different than the whip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is get mass times acceleration. The hand's the mass. Mm-hmm. How fast can it accelerate and put that force into the ball? Mm-hmm. And so what ended up happening, Eric Sato was, was a guy, 5'11", uh, Japanese-American guy, played with carts on the indoor team, won a couple of gold medals, might have won more than that. 5'11", and uh, him and Steve Timmons on the U.S. team. Steve Timmons was the middle, and Eric was like the sub guy, comes in off, gets you a jump serve, ace, and a dig. And they're the ones who hit the ball the highest. Like when they played indoors, they would have the hitting contest. And this, these two guys left, the big guy from the middle, who's big red sand guy, and this 5'11 guy who's just going up and just wham! <laughs> Bouncing up into the... You know, and uh, it's this mass times acceleration. Yeah. So there's two ways to hit a ball. There's a heavy ball yeah. that knocks you over. But then there's this fast ball that's like ping, 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 that just flies off and you can't, you can't catch up to it. Uh-huh. And, uh, and there's maybe people who combine both where they have a fast, heavy ball. Yeah. But I find that it's pretty extreme. Like there's people who hit heavy. And the ball hits you, it hurts and wants to knock you down. All their energy is in the ball. Then there's people who, like it's, the ball flies off you. It's not going to knock you down, but you can't see it. It's like, bing, bing, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. like a bullet. Yeah. That's interesting. And this is the swing for the bullet. This one's the one that the ball just disappears. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. There's <clears throat> some... My, my goal, uh, my vision of for myself is to become a very complete beach volleyball coach so, so that I can teach all these like sub techniques and, you know, like maybe find a player. Okay, maybe you should learn this sub technique. Maybe with the commitment level you have, maybe you don't want to do, go to the gym for half a year, you know, so learn this technique. Yeah. It's going to work with the strategy and like sort of give solutions to people like that. Yeah. One thing that I haven't had the time to look at, I know there's, certain very muscular people Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. probably with shorter arms than I do. I have okay. sort of flimsy arms and sort of long. Okay. I'm not the flimsiest, but but I'm I don't have the shortest arm either. Okay. But people that have a little bit shorter arms and they're very muscular mm -hmm. and very strong, they can basically just go up and like just mm -hmm. muscle the ball, and and there's a lot of power in that in the ball that way. Their technique looks horrible, but they can hit very hard. Yeah. Pro, not really pros do do this. I haven't really seen any pro hit like this, but okay. on this like intermediate level, you you sometimes find these like gym guys that <laughs> can just yeah. like hammer the ball. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting because you think about it, the ball is not that much. It doesn't weigh much, no. It doesn't take much for a human being to put some force into it. You think about kicking, like kicking a ball and all that kind of stuff. The ball, the, you can get the ball to go. Mm -hmm. You can get the ball to go. We forget about that. It's like we're not like hitting a medicine ball. Exactly. Yeah. So the uh, yeah technique you can have some you can have some really interesting techniques and the ball will go. What I'm looking at is a few things I'm looking at. One is you hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. How many times can you do that swing before you start to cause some injury? Uh, how many times can you replicate that swing technically? and get the ball to go where you want it to go. Does it have a flaw in it where the ball is going to take off, not go? Like how accurate is the hit going to be? Um, how much energy does it take? Mm -hmm. If when you're winning tournaments, you know, it doesn't help you when your goal is to win to be able to play three matches and then burn out. Oh, oh. You know, you got to play seven. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a long... Uh, and the other thing is, like, what advantages does it give to the uh, you or the defenders? So if the blocker, there's nothing worse from a blocking standpoint, I think. Well, first, getting wiped. Blockers hate to get wiped because they think they're doing something wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> You're getting wiped. This <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> the, uh, but when a blocker thinks they have a block, <clears throat> and then it goes. Like, people who can go up. And because you're moving at a certain rate when you're winding up and getting ready to swing, and then it's gone because it's a quick swing mm -hmm. yeah. versus a really rah, strong, predictable yeah, yeah. sort of swing, right? Yeah. So as a blocker, you much rather have information and be able to challenge the ball and, uh, instead of the ball just disappearing on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the same for the defender. Like as a defender, how many? What, what sort of cues are you getting? And how long do you have to process the cues before the ball is actually contacted? And, you know, also the angles, you know, you hit the ball with a certain amount of force, you get certain angles. You hit it with more force, the ball goes out of bounds by five, six inches. Mm -hmm. So I like, to, I like to hit with speed, but, you know, you got to teach big people, whether they're big and strong or tall. Oh. They, it's a different. It's, it's different. There's a difference, you know. Their orientation is different, you know. Their levers, everything is different. So that's true. Yeah. It's uh, I don't I don't believe there's a best for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there are certain characteristics it should have. Mm -hmm. Got to be consistent. You got to be able to repeat it. Uh, you got to be able to do it in different conditions under pressure. You got to be able to do it for a long time. You know. If you wear out, if it wears you out, or if it injures you, the Tiger Woods, you know, he had that technique where he was doing something with his knee, and then it caused him to have those surgeries, right? Like he was getting more distance, 
Mm -hmm. But the way he was torquing his knee caused him to get injured. Mm -hmm. You know, now you're already winning and you're hitting the ball pretty far. So how much more do you need? Like what you were talking about before, it's, there's a diminishing return at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, that that thing is. You are getting more. So yes, you're correct. But is that more helping you to win more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't know. Because at the end, perfection doesn't exist. We live in an imperfect world. <laughs> I think that's the problem with the perfectionist mind. Is um, it's never satisfies and it's, it causes it's obsessive, but but that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's bad when it controls you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, yeah, because I think it's a very very valuable thing to be able to plan super far ahead and be very like mm -hmm. understand like, but you have to use it as a tool and not like tool. like everything. Like yeah. I said something that it's a. I didn't think about it before, and I don't know if this is exactly what I said verbatim, but it's, um, yeah, it was exactly that about a tool. It's like, you know, is it the tool or are you the tool? You know, is it <laughs> using you or are you using it? You know? That's a good one, yeah. And the ego will do that to you, right? And, uh, yeah, so if you can't, if you must do it this way and you have no management over it, then you're the tool. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the <a> mind fuck. <laughs> it, is, it is. But you want to, yeah, you want to, you want to be managing your own tools, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, I have already asked you some selfish questions, maybe. No, no, <laughs> I realized I need to throw in some purely selfish questions into yeah. this one uh, about my own playing career. Yeah, cool. Uh, but I also asked my followers today. Uh, I was like, hey, I met this guy randomly on the beach. I'm going to have a podcast with him. Yeah. Uh, does anyone have any questions? And there was one question by Simon that was very similar to the one I wanted to ask anyway. Okay. So. My question was, do you have any ideas for improving blocking awareness? And his question was, uh, actually, this is what he wrote. Uh, great one. Always search more of him before. So there's someone else that found you on YouTube and oh. we're looking for more. Uh, would like more questions about vision and how to best train that. So mm. I think vision and blocking aware I feel a little bit stupid when I block like I know that I'm not aware of things as much as I should uh, okay do you have any any thoughts on either that or vision or yeah. well we're not doing a visual thing I'd show you something that's, that uh, yeah that's true okay that I, would, that I would do and it helps people with their stuff but <clears throat> the thing that comes up is uh, let me drink of water here's my water yeah. oh, right here. I brought it over I haven't opened it yet but uh, positioning and timing. Ooh. So <clears throat> I've got this system and uh, <clears throat> uh, so part of the system is this, for example, big line. Big line I position in a way where the hitter has no opportunity to hit the ball down the line. So I shake my hand, turn back into the court, I overcompensate on the outside of the body. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm, I'm soft in the middle. Not because I want to be, but because in order to overcompensate on the line so I don't get wiped uh-huh. or I minimize their opportunity to hit down the line. It, this is all as a blocker, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so it's overcompensating. Then I have the normal line um, where you split. So you would split, you know. Um, split the hitter in the middle. In the middle. <clears throat> or no, no, you split yourself in the middle by the hitter's hand. Is that right. how? Yeah. So my half, my middle of my body is on their shoulder and hand, right? So, yeah. 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 <clears throat> so, but doing this, I've got one hand line and one hand in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, this is not a big line block. The, the outside hand can still be wiped. Mm-hmm. When you go big line, the outside hand there's a position that you get into. The outside hand cannot be wiped. The position of the hand, the position of the where the body. <clears throat> and then when I cross block, I take my shoulder and match it to their outside shoulder. So none of our bodies are um, aligned. Aligned. <clears throat> my outside shoulder and their outside shoulder are aligned. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> you see, some people move away where there's a gap between them and the hitter. It's an effective hit, but I like to start with the shoulders just outside of each other, aligned, just outside, because I like to keep the outside hand on the ball. Yeah. And then the inside hand seals the cross. Mm -hmm. So literally one's high, one's low, because what people, it's really interesting when you see um, people go to block, it's like this bowing motion, right? They start high and then they just push straight down like they're bowing, when really the cross court block is taking that shoulder and penetrating across the net. And the ball is gonna start high where they're contacting it, but as it starts to move diagonally, it get lo- gets lower and lower. It's only crossing the net by inches. Yeah. So there's no reason to be reaching up with that inside hand because that's not where the, that hand's gonna meet the ball. And oftentimes you see people get hit under mm-hmm. yeah. because they're acting <clears throat> like the block is one unit. I look at the block like, one hand is the outside blocker, the other one's the middle blocker. Mm-hmm. So they're one system, but they're independent of each other. So one is, if, if this hand was doing the job of the outside blocker, it would be reaching up, meeting the ball there to seal the line. The middle blocker would be taking the cross court. And if you really extreme, the third blocker who joins the end, yeah? yeah, they're really down the net. So what that looks like is starting there, step down and over to be the third blocker. Am I being the third? Is this a three-person block Mm -hmm. or a two-person block? If it's a two-person block, it could start looking like a line block, but the hand movement is always going to reach in with the outside hand trailing the ball so they can't Mm -hmm. turn it back. But the inside hand that shoulder's pushing in, and the the further I can get my hand across the net, the more angles I cut off, yeah. the bigger my block. Yeah. So we haven't talked about vision yet. Uh-huh, no. What I like to do before we get to any vision or any of that sort of stuff is positioning and timing because you trap the ball. When you get the right position around the ball and the shoulder, remember the closing the eyes? 
I don't suggest you close your eyes on blocking. Uh-huh. <laughs> You'll ruin your fingers. You'll ruin your fingers. Yeah, some bent fingers, fingers here. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and the second time I did do that on a block, which is funny. The first time I was on an open hand dig. The second time I was on a block. <laughs> but uh but that uh, one is seriously fucked up <laughs> it is. that's many years ago man. 90 degrees <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh yeah so getting in the right position on the ball gives you such an advantage because the ball has to cross it has to cross you and when you put your arms and hands in the right position the ball's trapped there's some escapes but the ball's pretty trapped and then it goes back to like Bruce Lee has a has a um, it's funny he keeps coming up tonight. I don't think about this often, but I did read one of his books and some of the things he talked about. And I, I like to watch him sometimes. And um, you don't when you look at something directly, all you can see is your focal vision. All you can see is what's in that little yeah. circle of vision. And you miss everything else. So what this looks like when you're standing toe-to-toe to someone, you're looking at them, you might see their face, you might see their shoulders, hands up, whatever. Then they kick you. Mm-hmm. And you never see it coming because all your concentration is on this this focal point. Yep. Then you have your peripheral vision. And then you have your extended vision. And extended vision, you don't even see it. It might be behind you. It's you're seeing something in your mind and you feel it. But when you feel it, you get an image of it. And so, for example, if I asked you to point toward the door without looking, could you just point toward the door? Yep. And when I you, think that's yep, about it. Yep. And point to where you think the bathroom is. Probably over there. Yeah. So it's really interesting because as you do that, you're creating these images in your head and you've got these subconscious, uh, you've already seen this stuff, whether you recognize it or not, it's in your subconscious and you just access it and mm-hmm. it's really accurate really accurate and I think it's kind of what we do when we're in the zone and you're not really aware of what's going on and you just you're accessing some of this stuff so with Bruce Lee it's like if you want to see the whole person you have to look over them you have to look over their shoulder and you're really kind of using your peripheral vision and extended vision and then what you're actually seeing is you're not seeing the body part you're seeing the movement Mm -hmm. so as they go to move their leg you see it because you're not actually focused on one point Mm -hmm. You're, you're taking in the whole energy mm-hmm. field, right? So that's the way I kind of think. That's the way I I, I kind of like it because are you really seeing the ball? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, are you really, really seeing the ball? Uh, like staring at it going, oh, that's, I don't think it, I don't think it works that way. No, I'm but not I, really <clears throat> watching the hitter either. But you 100%. Put the movement up though. Yeah. And you'll, when you really, when you're there and you're using your peripheral and your extended vision, they go to turn and you'll notice it and you'll just reach mm-hmm. with no conscious thought. Yeah. And so this is the thing I'm always looking for is how to reduce the gap between taking information, getting, seeing information, processing it, then acting on it. Mm-hmm. If you can act on what you're seeing in real time, no gap. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when you're in flow. So what's happening is you're in you're in sync, you're in time with it. So as it's moving, you're moving. As it changes, you change. Mm-hmm. You're not really processing anything. Mm-hmm. It's it, you're just in sync. Yeah, and that's flow. So that's that thing that some people call spiritual almost. Like it's it's because it's hyper fast. 
it's it's hyper fast because there's no gap. You're not you're not using your conscious mind to process anything. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's that's where I'm always trying to get to is just get to the zone, uh, get to that space. It's like halfway between alpha and theta. Like that kind of place In where brainwave states. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where you just like you're there, but you're not there. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that's that's where I think you get your like heightened uh, awareness and uh, performance. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. The conscious mind just comes out. It's the subconscious with the body. Yep. And the conscious mind is kind of observing. It's like, oh wow, look at that. That's so cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like watching yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, this, uh, so there's this, this volleyball coaches group on Facebook that I'm a part of, and there's this one guy there, Michael Hockey, I think. We both, so there's a lot of research that says that human reaction time is 0 0.2 seconds. Okay. Uh, I haven't done this yet, I really want to do it, but I, I, I'm going to do it with a high-speed camera and get into this state where I feel like I have this hyper reaction, this uh, spiritual whatever yeah. <laughs> way to react. And I want to see if the, if it's less, if it's 0 0.2 seconds or if it's actually less. Because if it's less, then basically all of sports research is based on the shortest human reaction time that we have with the conscious mind. Mm. But in reality, we can access this other state which maybe hasn't been done in a lab. So, so okay. And there's a lot of sports research that is just, you know, in baseball, they're like, okay, so if it takes 0 0.2 seconds, this means that they, people have to be picking up cues at this point in the throw mm -hmm. and whatnot. But so, so they're like looking more into like how to read the player better and better and better and better, mm -hmm. which I think is there's also value in that. But maybe it's about accessing the state where you just react faster. So I, I usually explain it to, to players as when you're in the kitchen, there's a glass on the countertop, you turn around and you elbow it towards the, towards the floor, your hand is going to go and grab it before it hits the floor. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like it was you. You have no idea yeah. who was the actual person that caught that glass. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something else. Yeah. It's something within you, apparently, but it doesn't. you never take the decision to do that. Yeah. And it's accessing that state. But <laughs> now it gets... Super curious to do this video because uh, I again yeah. got reminded of it. I'd, I'd love to see the results of that. <laughs> yeah. What's up? Alex here with the third and last cutting. So we're talking about this reaction speed and time kind of thing. And I said that I was curious to run this experiment because I was thinking that I would get interesting results from it. And so I hadn't run this experiment at the time we recorded this episode and then I did run it and uh, I got the results which I'll tell you about in a second and then actually now I'm releasing this episode and in the future I'm gonna make a video about the results of my experiment but I'll just tell you about the results now so what actually ended up happening is that my reaction speed when I'm in this um, sort of mode where I feel like my reaction speed is hyper quick was 0 0.13 seconds which means that it's quicker than uh, what a lot of these researchers are 
assuming that the, the human reaction speed is. So I think there is some, uh, some, um, some meat to my theory. <laughs> uh, I just uh, wanted to add that because I, I think it's interesting. So in the description again for this episode, I will add the link to the video about this uh, whole reaction speed experiment once that video is up. So if you go and check it out now, it might or might not be there. But yeah, basically my results were that, okay, it was 0.13 seconds when I felt really quick, when I felt slower and I felt like I had to think about reacting, my reaction speed was roughly 0.25 seconds. And I have read that these researchers have said that the, the um, reaction speed is somewhere between 0.2 and 0.25, depending on sort of who you listen to. So I don't know. I think it makes some sense, um, the theory that this reaction speed is with thinking and without thinking it's quicker, but uh, who knows, I'm not a researcher, <laughs> at least not yet, maybe one day. All right, let's get continued with the episode. I'd love to see the results of that. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a movie they made it. <clears throat> so I went to Calgary um, as part of this um, coaching program. Um, it's like a pure elite coaching program. And uh, they did, um, we flew a helicopter with our brainwaves. Okay. You have to only, you have to like, you had to be a certain megahertz between alpha, theta, or the thing wouldn't move. But once you got it, and it would fly as high as you could manage, right? And it's funny, because once you become conscious of it, then it, it, some other... Okay, so, so this helicopter was flying if you get into this mind state yeah okay yeah okay interesting. Mm -hmm. and um and the more you got into this brainwave the higher the helicopter would go right yeah or not <laughs> yeah depending but so all this research was based off of the same thing there's a movie of um this guy who uh the free climbers where they climb mm -hmm. cliff faces and stuff right so I forget the name of the movie, but they did this research with this group, these group of athletes, right? The cliff face. What they discovered was you have to have, there has to be some risk to get into the zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People think that you're just going to relax into it and all that kind of stuff. That's not it. There was a, they actually, I don't know if they call it a stress or whatever. I don't think they call it a stress. There's something... I, I interpret it as risk. There's something like there's a little nerves or whatever. There's there's something at risk. It's not just like zoning out. Mm -hmm. You know, people when they uh, their performance isn't great or whatever, and they just try to relax, but they try to be like nothing. Mm -hmm. And now they can't. They're not activated enough. Yeah. So there's a certain level of activation. That they that this research revealed a certain level level of uh, activation that you needed to be able to enter the state, and um, so it was really interesting because when I flew this helicopter, I was kind of I was a little bit nervous, like, am I going to be able to get this thing off the ground? <laughs> What's up? And that that apparently I needed to have that because if I'd gone into it like, oh yeah, this is going to be easy, cool. 
And it was interesting because we were all elite coaches doing this. And, you know, some were cocky and everything. And it was interesting to see who could do it and who couldn't do it uh, right away. And, um, and then the debrief. What was going on with them. And, and yeah, the people who thought it was going to be easy, they couldn't fly the helicopter. Interesting. It was interesting. Because I never knew that before. I never knew that there had to be this tension Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm interpreting it as, I don't know if this is the way to describe it, but I'm interpreting it as something had to be at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they found, so bungee jumping, free climbing, yeah. all this sort of stuff, automatically they go. They have to go into zone. Yeah. They can't be thinking. Uh, like they're, they're, they're in the zone. The, yeah. the danger, the risk that's there automatically drops them into the zone. When you think about free climbing and stuff, climbing a cliff face, you get tired. There's no, oh, I'm just going to quit. If you want to quit, you got to come back down. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, you don't have any safety equipment. <laughs> I mean, no, like, no. How do you stay that focused, that intense, all that problem solving? If you went into your conscious mind, you'd fall off the, off the cliff yeah, face. Yeah. So I don't know if this is the same researcher. There's someone called Stephen Kotler, Maybe has written book familiar. Stealing Fire and uh, Rise of Super- Superman, I think. I've heard of books in his name, but I, don't, I haven't read those books. I haven't either. I've only read the fucking intro, and I need to read them like ASAP. I should have read them ASAP years ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there. I, I think I read the intro, and he also said, like, because certain extreme sports, there's life or health at risk if you mm-hmm. fuck up life or health. Okay. that that sends you into that that state and yeah. and i can every now and then i have advantages of having been a snowboarder and a skateboarder mm-hmm. there is a very when you're working on a trick in snowboarding or skateboarding that is dangerous but you think you can get it and you're mm-hmm. scared and you do repetition after repetition after mm-hmm. repetition and going to closer and closer to committing. Often there's a commitment part into the okay. trick, so you can you can sort of bail out mid-air mm-hmm. and and just fall on your feet and, and you're fine, but you're not gonna get the trick done. So there's there's one repetition where you just have to decide that okay, now I'm gonna go for it. Mm-hmm. And if you're too clumsy, whatever, that's when you actually fuck up yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you when you go over that edge successfully, like it's the it's one of the most addictive and and like uh, it's mm. such a great feeling and that's yeah. what keeps skateboarding skateboarding and snowboarding, snowboarding. Wow. Um, <laughs> i believe to, to a big extent like you can be there would be days where we would like build a spot for a full day go and like the day after get camera equipment so many things to organize lamps uh, electrical whatever f- everything and make sure the police doesn't get there. Then you have to work for hours to get this trick down. And there's so much risk that you're going to fuck up like the whole, all of that work you put in and you're not going to get the shot or you're going to fuck up your body. Wow. But like you actually in the end get that, like that feeling is just absolutely, uh, I get high right now from yeah. talking about it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but there, there is traditional sports Beach volleyball is not that high risk in in that sense. I, I sometimes people because I I believe in training technique and and some people uh, 
I, I believe in drills. I, I believe that you can break things down and then you can reassemble into the game. And there's a lot, that's a long discussion we're not going to go into. And, but uh, it's, it's very possible. I think it can be very, be very efficient. Uh, and we do that a lot in, in skateboarding and snowboarding. We, we you know, break down the, the skills. And it's because if you don't, you're going to fuck up yourself. Because if you go for the full trick straight away, you, there's physical injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, in beach volleyball, every time you double contact the ball, mm-hmm. it's not like someone's going to come and punch you. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. going to lose a point, but they're not going to come, come and punch you. So it's not a physical threat. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but so that's basically the difference between an extreme sport and a normal one mm-hmm. is that when you, when you mishandle the ball, when you hit out of bounds, whatever, mm-hmm. Uh, rather than losing a point, you're losing actual physical fitness and yeah. you might get a concussion, you might get something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'd be interesting if you dealt with a ball and somebody came up with like a uh, a little bat with a phone that went, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you get into this like, oh, look at this coach, idiot, fucking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> highlight yeah. on the internet type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's some videos of these Russian coaches that like hit balls yeah. super hard at their athletes, like ball after ball after ball. <laughs> <laughs> and nowadays things are more world is more politically correct so yeah. a lot of people are just having like crazy reactions to this and uh which <laughs> i don't know <laughs> like a cattle prod <laughs> what the stop doubling the ball <laughs> it'd be extreme yeah. wow and of course so just for the record for the whole drilling and and uh, breaking down skills or not discussion since you don't get punished physically mm. there might be certain aspects where it is more efficient to learn the skill by not breaking it down but actually trying to learn yeah. it in in the game system straight away yeah. so just wanted to add that to whoever is going to try to listen to this podcast and say i'm an idiot yeah. <laughs> no but it's you know what it's i used to break down <clears throat> i have a system it's Base building, which is breaking down everything, is beliefs, value systems, self-image, all that sort of stuff. Um, high repetition, once you break it down and you build it, then you get the brain out, repeat, 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 repeat. Game situation, you take that skill, you link it with other skills, and you put it in the situation you need it, but very controlled. So you excuse me, repeat the situation over. And then match play. Stop learning. Now it's about using it. Mm-hmm. So how are you gonna manage yourself, manage it, and play matches? And you know, it's all about not using things you can't use and maximizing the things you can, mm-hmm. and figuring that out. And it, you'll see people trying to learn during the match, like they're like it's practice, and it's like this is not practice. If you you use it to the best of your ability, you celebrate and you move on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. If you can't use it, stop using it. Use something else, and if they're making you use it, well, then you better use it to the best of your ability and make it up another whatever's going on. This is winning time, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. And then what I realized is, especially the higher the skill level, you don't have to go all the way back to base building. Base building is a very specific thing in the off season mm-hmm. when I'm trying to get people to face things that they never face because. You know, I don't know if I said it before, but people like to um, improve in the areas they're already good at or what they're familiar with or where they grow easily. 
they really hate, seem to hate going, you know, changing or facing things that they're not good at, don't comprehend. Because it's like, they take it personally like, oh, it's not the performance, it's me. Mm-hmm. Performance isn't bad, I'm bad. Mm-hmm. I can't do this, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, no, you'll learn it or you'll learn some version of it. Maybe you won't be the best at that, but you can be, you know, good at it. You know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's where I think people lose year after year because, you know, since 1990, I'm on tour, I'm off tour. <laughs> I'm on tour, I'm off tour. It fascinates me when I have a break from being on tour, a couple years, three years, four years, whatever, and I come back on tour and the same people are playing and you can beat them the same way. Uh-huh. They've gotten better. They're more experienced, they're winning, they're better ranking, but they never worked on those things that... On the weaknesses. On the weaknesses. Uh, and the real weaknesses, because we're weak in some areas that you can survive. Mm-hmm. But there's other areas where if you... The critical weaknesses. It's critical sense. weaknesses. You put them in that environment, they will never be able to play out of it. Mm-hmm. And they never work on it. And then they leave the match thinking they had a bad match because the next match, the next team doesn't put them in that situation and they see the new performance, mm-hmm. which is better. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a bad game. Mm-hmm. You always have a bad game against me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Wonder why that is. I'm not going to tell you about it, but you know. So the way to win in beach volleyball is to become a master at seeing people's critical weaknesses. That's the beginning of strategy, psychology. Oh. You always have to, uh, before you can select the play, you have to see the person. I have a system called the BECS, uh, B-E-C-S. You build an environment where they cooperate with your strategy. We're a net sport, so I can't physically control you. Mm-hmm. If I can tackle you or if I can bump you or whatever, then I can control you. But in our sport, if I interfere with you, then I'm the one who loses the point. Yeah, yeah. So I have to influence you because I can't control you. And uh, so the way to influence someone who has three contacts, tennis, table tennis, you one contact. So I can influence you, but if I have three contacts to position the ball and prepare and everything else and then enter it into your court, that's a real opportunity to influence what you do, uh, where you move, how you, you know. With one contact, you might be able to control me. So you're hitting a shot where I have to give you a return in an area that you like. Mm-hmm. To whereas with three contacts, even if that first ball puts me under pressure, I've got a second second ball to reposition it and a third ball to attack you it's a volleyball is a really unique sort of situation mm-hmm. and um as a rebound sport so yeah it's um you have to the building an environment where they cooperate i'm building a certain environment physical psychological um uh environment where if I know your nature, I can predict how you're gonna, res- your stress response here. So I create this environment and oh, there you go. Now you're acting like you're afraid or you're turning on your partner or you're avoiding, you know, whatever. And uh, and it's simple, you know, block, block a big hitter twice in a row, what do they do? Shoot. Or- yeah, so imagine, let's go through the, so I'm a big hitter, I'm an ego hitter. And I go up and I'm going to smash the ball across court and you do a block. Boom, you block me. 
Uh-huh. What does the big ego hitter say? Do they go, oh my God, I'm so afraid now? No, they're never going to go again. Yeah, you're lucky. I made a bad hit. Whatever, they're in a little bit of denial. Then you go up, bang, line, or cross again. They go, I'm just going to challenge you. Boom, you blocked them again. Now what do they do? Go again, maybe. Oh, really arrogant. They have to be super arrogant just to keep challenging you, keep challenging you, or they're in fear and they're just like, don't have another response. But they'll, oh, okay, wait a minute, that's not a fluke. Okay, line shot, it's needed a little variation. It's a very simple strategy, or they question, oh, Z, you have my number here? Something, there's a little bit of doubt. You run down the line shot. Now it's like, I don't have my hit, I don't have my line shot. Now their ego's in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. The ego is in jeopardy. You do that a couple of times, and they're on the they're on the tipping. <laughs> they're right. They're looking at you, looking too long, trying to shoot, hitting, hitting out. There's all sorts of stuff that would never have happened. Yeah. Would never have happened if you hadn't grouped those two things together. Now you dig them. They still get to be strong. Nobody stops them at the net. They they still might go through this. Uh, you can get me thing. But it's not like when you block someone, you're like, it's like a fight. Yeah. As close as it gets in volleyball. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like you're toe to toe, you're at the net, they're trying to hit you and you just shut them down. You shut somebody down a few times to where they can't dismiss it, then you see, you see the, the questions come up, right? If uh, someone doesn't have power and they shoot and you run them down, and someone's really good at shooting, you'll see the questions come up because they mm-hmm. think they're strategic. Yeah. They think they're technical, but that doesn't, now I need to be strong because mm-hmm. me being strategic isn't helping. You, you're outsmarting me. You're outplaying me. And now they have to try to swing. And when they swing, what happens? They hit it out, they get blocked. I'm not strong, I'm strategic, but you took it away from me. Mm-hmm. So you just build this environment where you can predict. And there's six side changes. So you have two or three side changes to develop this environment. And then they start to cooperate or not. Maybe you can't get the environment that causes them to be a certain way. You might have to try another environment, whether serving them short to bring them closer to the blocker, or mm-hmm. serving down the middle deep to break the partnership and get a lateral pass. They have to watch it over the shoulder. And now they don't feel strong and powerful. It's, some environment you can create where if they haven't prepared for it, they could, um, they could be very predictable. They can lose their dopamine in the brain and, and start yeah. checking the yeah. services. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, so Bex, build an environment where they cooperate with your strategy. And it all starts with psychology. There's like seven pieces to it, but it starts with psychology. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. And people, they start their strategy, they don't start with psychology. A lot of times they start what they like to do, what I can do, what I like to do, or they go, oh, they don't like this. Well, how do you know they don't like that? That's true, yeah. They don't like that against that team on that day in those conditions. Can you replicate that? Mm-hmm. Oh, what'd you do against them? Oh, we just served the right sider on the outside and blocked them cross. Okay, let me try that. Well, yeah, but your block is seven foot and mine's, you know, six two. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe I need to bring them more toward the middle or, uh, you know, whatever it is. Starting with the psychologist, that's uh, 
that's definitely a new one for me today. I need to spend some thinking time on that. <laughs> so what I do is I profile people. I'll spend years collecting a little book and uh, and just players. Yeah, profile, and it's, yeah. but it's very simple because all I'm looking for are the, the consistent common things. So there's a, you can there's a million things people can do, but there's maybe three or four things they do all the time, every year. It's just like human behavior in mm-hmm. our lives. There's just certain things. You get to know the person and you go, oh, yeah, they're going to do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to be that. They're going to say this. It's the same as players. Maybe they learn to um, choose differently, but under pressure, what do they revert back to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. Makes sense. So you have a secret book somewhere. <laughs> I used to have a secret physical up. book. Uh, <laughs> it had many pages and everything. And, uh, I don't have a physical book anymore because I'm not uh, actively coaching. But uh, yeah, I used to have just a little black book. Well, it's a little black. It was a folder. And I have my game plans and I just make little notes. And people used to hate this, I think. I used to bug them with it. I would just go to the tournaments and I would just sit and watch games. And people mm-hmm. would see me watching them like, Watching me, man. <laughs> taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. Yeah. And I was always just kind of in the background watching. It's like, and I see people looking at me like, man, a shadow, get out of here. <laughs> and then we played them, and I got like seven or eight pages. Yeah. Like, you know, so that's seven different times I've seen them in different conditions. Mm-hmm. And I just cross reference. What's the thing that always shows up? Oh, these three things. Well, guess what we're going to do? Mm-hmm. All these other things can be effective too, but these things we can trust because windy, always no there. wind, whatever. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. Yeah. You isolate this partner uh, where they don't get to touch the ball, this person will turn on them. Okay. We're going to isolate this partner. This partner's playing pretty well. Mm-hmm. This person isn't agitated yet. Oh, now we got this partner in a little trouble. Well, guess what just happened? Now they're a little agitated. Mm-hmm. We hold them in that moment. Ooh, then we slip one down the line. Oh, you caught me off guard. What? Oh, then we come back here. Give me the ball again. Give me the ball again. Mm-hmm. You're not getting the ball anymore. Yeah. It was your one chance. Yeah. Now you have to watch this person lose on your behalf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And then you see them freak out. And by the second set, they're, they're nowhere in the match anymore. They just want to get off the court. Uh-huh. They don't want to have this person hold their destiny and you got to watch, everybody's got to watch them sit out here and be helpless and stuff. The ego can't take it. They'll start sabotaging the team. Yeah. Just to get off the court. Uh huh. <laughs> first set, if they'd won that first set, they're a different animal, but you beat them that first set and they had to watch that and feel that way, watch them in the timeout or the, the side change or the, uh, te- you know, after between each game. Look at how they interact. Look at the other partner. Like, I don't look at you. Stop talking to me. <laughs> Screaming, you know, whatever. Oh. And looking at them like, I got to trust you and you suck. You know, and then they come back on the ground and you see them kind of look at them to start the game. Like, you going to be okay this time? And what do you do? You serve it right down the middle toward the other partner. Oh, right again. Nope, you're never going to touch the ball. Now I feel helpless. I got to go through this again? No, out of here. Mm-hmm. Out of here. Quick. Oh. Well. Yeah. Interesting. Twenty one fourteen. Get out of here. 
Uh, how's your brain doing? You've been doing a lot of talking here for uh, yes, several good. hours now. I, see. <laughs> <laughs> I want yeah, to respect your, your, because yeah, <laughs> I know I get like talk fatigue after a few while. And now I've been listening a lot, so I don't have it yet myself. But yeah, uh, I'm good. It, it's been a long day, and uh, I just think we just need to do more. We can do some more. It doesn't have to be the only time. Yeah, we can do some stuff. I don't know if you do it over. Uh, you know, over the internet or whatever, but even after we leave, man. So definitely, I mean, I'm. <laughs> this is fucking amazing for me, listeners. Uh, if it's amazing cool. for you, then it, we're all just fucking winning. Yeah. Uh, well, that's like I said. You know, it's. Um, I mean, there are things that I have that are my trade secret sort of things, and and what we're talking about. I mean, you know, there's some trade secret stuff in there, but there's some. Special sauce, <laughs> yeah. stuff that you can't, you know, proprietary stuff you can't put out there. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, and it's and here's here's the really interesting thing about it, and this is what I find. There's something okay. You have this thing like a it's like a power tool. You take an untrained person and you give them a power tool, it's, it's just not, dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give them somebody a saw, you know, they don't, certainly they don't know how to use a saw. They don't cut yeah. some fingers off, right? So some of these things are kind of like saws, right? You, you learn how to use them. You respect them, all that sort of stuff. You start slow. You'll see benefit right away. You'll get experience, and you'll figure out how to use it. Uh, but sometimes you see people just, um, they don't understand it. They don't, it's like a little bit of knowledge is dangerous, right? It's yeah, enough yeah. to be dangerous, right? Yeah, yeah. So some of it's a little bit like that because it seems it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It's like the wrist snap mm-hmm. thing. It's not easy to uh, keep your form, but be relaxed. So you get more speed. Yeah. And then to contract on contact and then relax again. Yeah, it's a it's a special fucking combo of yeah. movements and contractions yes. and relaxation. Yeah. yeah, and it's just really, uh, yeah. I'm the same. I I have the YouTube channel with with free videos and, but I also coach and I also want to make some money. <laughs> but yeah. but I found the perfect balance is, I mean, a YouTube video is low investment. You just um, click it and watch it ten minutes, twenty minutes. Who knows yeah. what it is and and you learn something. Yeah. Uh, but there's certain things that I don't talk about in the free videos because I know that it's like prerequisite. Like it, you're not gonna get the value of this. You're just gonna fuck yourself up yeah, exactly. if you get this piece of information without the couple exactly. hours of information that you have to have before, exactly. so that you can put it in use yeah. in the right ways and 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 learn it and and so that you understand what I mean when I say this and this and that. Yeah. Uh, so it just makes perfect sense and. If I'm, let's say I, I make this four-hour course with with you know all the information. If I put that on YouTube, no one's gonna watch it because it's too long. Yeah. So it's the perfect balance between free content uh, and paid content because uh, it's uh, well, the paid content is more in depth, but it also takes a more uh, committed viewer uh, that has to be. Yep. So then, then it's not a problem. It's a win-win. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cause- and that's kind of the the powerful analogy, yeah. uh, I think, it, it, at least what I comes up in my mind. Yeah, and I, and you, I just mentioned it because I don't want to do anybody a disservice thinking, oh, okay, now I can go out and start using this. Some things are just dead simple. You go out and start using some things, like you say, you need a foundation. Yeah, yeah. There's more to it than just that. Uh, 
Like it's, I mean, it's, none of this is rocket science. Psychology, just take a look at who they are before you start talking strategy. <laughs> you know, just observe. Yeah. And, and it's, it's only one or two things that, uh, so most of the game is side out, and then you just need one or two advantages to score points. And once you start scoring points, it's the way I define momentum is grouping points. So, you know, I score one, you score one. I score one, you score one. There's no momentum. Uh-huh. I score one, I score one, you score one. I score one, you score one. I score one, I score one, you score one. Uh-huh. It feels like momentum, but to me, two in a row, a side out and a point is really potential. The real psychology, the emotions, everything comes into it when side out, I score one, I score another one. Mm-hmm. Three points in a row, physically, the gap between the points, it's a side out doesn't get you back on track anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to earn a point to get back on. Um, so physically with the points, but psychologically, it does something to people. It mm-hmm. puts you in that vulnerable space where it's like, whoa, it's not a fluke. We got to stop them here. If you get a fourth point, man, that's a big gap to make up in the game. Mm-hmm. Not impossible, but it just psychologically feels like now you're chasing. Mm-hmm. So that to me is momentum. And it comes with all this stuff. It's not just the points. It's the psychology, what happens to the relationship, what happens to the, the person themselves. What stress do they start to feel? How do you react when you get, like with the dopamine and the adrenaline and everything, okay, you side out. People get excited, but it's not the most exciting thing in the world, you know. Then you score a block or a dig. or they, That's pretty exciting. Then you get another point. That's pretty freaking exciting. You get another point, you're like, we got you here a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. We just got four points on you, you know. You're chasing us now. Oh. You know, <clears throat> four points, that's, you know, that's uh, 16-12, you know, oh. that's, that's uh, you know, 19-15. Like when you put the four points in the score line, it, it looks significant. Mm-hmm. That's true. It looks significant. You're like, whoa, two points, you know, 18-16, 19 oh. you know. 1916, three points. That doesn't feel good. 1915? That feels like, wow, mm-hmm. a couple side outs here. I beat you, buddy. It's like, yeah. it gets on you. So it's uh That's true. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of psychology in that. Yeah. It's almost like a dropping edge. Like the further you get, the, the, the further. Or, like a curved edge, like the further out from the middle you get, the, the deeper you end up. Yeah. <laughs> in a sense. So, <clears throat> uh, yesterday when when I presented this podcast to you, mm-hmm. I said that I'm a guy that's very interested in in volleyball, also personal development, yeah. business, whatever, and the combination of these, how we can use this. And uh, I like bridging between them, which we have done a lot in here. Uh, but I also, you sent me some links to, to watch and, and you have some, you're definitely not only beach volleyball coaching. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go into that more? What do you feel like? Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I do. I do. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's, there's two things. Uh, I, really. I said this is going to be mutually <laughs> beneficial. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me yeah. and my listeners have drawn a lot of knowledge from you. So. Okay. Well, so my um, the meeting that I that I uh, that was missed by both of us, which I'm was very fortunate, um, was for an organization, Small Businesses Essential. Right now, it's a North American initiative. It's in Canada. But it's a, it's a nonprofit. Um, I'm the incoming president. Uh, there's a founder president who's uh, going out, and I'm taking over the presidency of this, this nonprofit. And it's it's to help responsibly reopen the economy, mm-hmm. um, reopen, keep open. Mm-hmm. And um, from this Corona crisis, from Corona crisis, but it's it's for whatever threats that are in the future. Okay. So um, what we realize, what Corona has done, and especially in North America, I think it's done it around the world. It really exposed how unprepared we are yeah, yeah. for any sort of real major crisis. We don't have any systems, we don't have any continuity programs in place to really um, keep us operating, but safely. And so <clears throat> in um, Canada, a lot of places around the world, but I'm speaking of Canada because that's the environment I'm in. They talk a lot about response and recovery. Every plan you see is either a recovery plan or a response plan. And we haven't started the conversation of prevention and protection. Mm-hmm. I just started to hear a little bit on CNN. Uh, Chris Como had a guy on um, who did the movie Contagion. He was the, uh, the scientist who was the advisor for the movie Contagion. Okay. And, Contagion? I think it's Contagion. That sounds like a pandemic movie. It's a pandemic movie. It was uh-huh. made, I think, 2018. Okay. And it's pretty much what we're living now. Uh-huh. So the point Chris Como was making was, back in 2018, you knew that this was going to happen. And he's like, we had this information, but we've done nothing to prepare for it. Uh-huh. Now, here's the problem. With the recovery, um, with the response and recovery, we have this pandemic. Nobody knows what's going on. We need a response. The response is lockdown. Let's figure it out. Get people out of the streets. Stop giving it to each other. Okay. And we figured it out a little bit. And now we can start to recover. We can start to reopen. Kids can go back to school. We're in recovery. No behavior has changed. None of our systems have really changed. We're just, the numbers have gone down. So numbers are spiking. Mm-hmm. Now they're going down. And so as part of recovery, we reopen. And then what happens? Because no behaviors changed, we don't have any new systems, any prevention in place, the numbers go back up. Mm-hmm. And what do we do? We respond. Yeah. What's the response? Lockdown. <laughs> yeah. It's like a yo-yo diet. Yeah. With everybody locked away, what happens? The numbers go down. What behaviors change? Mindset, systems, anything, nothing's changed. We start to recover. Oh, the numbers are down. We can start to open up again. And so the system itself becomes this perpetual cycle Mm -hmm. of lockdown, reopen, lockdown, reopen. The part that's missing is prevention and protection. Mm -hmm. So when we, now this was totally appropriate when we first, um, when this thing first happened. Lockdown, totally totally appropriate. And lockdown is a real strategy mm-hmm. that we should have in a crisis. So if this thing was so contagious and it's airborne, 
where you couldn't come out of your house, that's a crisis. We need to be in lockdown. Mm-hmm. And the only businesses that need to be operating are essential and non-essential businesses. Mm-hmm. Non-essential, they don't need to be operating. But there are businesses that can operate safely now that can't open. And now the economy is affected. So instead of it being essential and non-essential, in an emergency, which is what we have, something that we can control is an emergency. There's a problem, we just know how to control it. That's an emergency. A crisis, we don't know what to do or we can't control this thing. Mm-hmm. Lock it down. But in an emergency, we can have safe operation. If someone's operating unsafely, they need to close because mm-hmm. they're the ones who are going to keep perpetuating this thing. But if people can operate safely, they should be open for lots of reasons. The fact that the economy stays open, they make mm-hmm. money, uh, but more importantly, people's mental health, mm-hmm. well-being, depression, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's there's so many reasons, and then we're actually modeling for other people. So I think that ownership, this sort of ownership, comes through business owners. There are local heroes, they're the influencers. If they're operating safely and keeping people safe, people take that behavior into their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Not a guarantee, but there are influences there. Those people have conversations, those people influence in the community. It's not gonna come from government. Government's not in any community that, you know, they don't have the affinity where people are like, oh, because government said do this, I'm gonna do it. In North America, the words compliance and mandate are dirty words. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. you're trying to force me to do something? You're not gonna take my right away from me. But ownership, we have to have community ownership. We have to have a collective economy. So our part is we have to operate safely. Not because the government told us to, but because we want this thing to end. Now, this is a pandemic. It could be anything. War, economic crisis, we're exposed. We need a system, a continuity system, where we can operate safely regardless of what the crisis is. Because we don't know what the next threat is. And there's a threat coming. Mm -hmm. We still know what it is. And, for example, in Germany, they have a system um, that came about with the financial crisis 2008 where um, the businesses cut the hours of their employees so they might put them on half time so they pay them for the time that they work and the government pr- provides a subsidy for the t- for them not working mm-hmm. so now you get people pretty much making close to their full income mm-hmm but only working half the time. So the business is under less pressure because they're paying half of what they have to normally pay that employee. Mm -hmm. They're still employed. They're still operating and making income. And the government is subsidizing the, instead of just giving money like we are right now, we're just giving money. Mm -hmm. They're giving money to people who are employed. Right now in the US, people won't take jobs. They're making more on unemployment Mm -hmm. than they are being employed. Mm-hmm. But in this way, you're only getting your subsidy when you're employed. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was a really intelligent sort of system that you know helped protect them and keep businesses open. I'm worried about who's going to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Government's spending all this money. Why are they going to recoup their money? 
people aren't working. Where does, where's tax dollars coming? There's, there's a lot of, um, like there's direct and there's indirect uh, impact. There's a lot of indirect impact here that we're not even paying attention to. Absolutely. Three to five years down the road, it's going to smack us right in the face. Mm -hmm. So that's what this whole small business is essential. It's, it's small, but it's really small all. So it's capital S, small M, capital A, capital L, capital L. Small all business is essential. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, big businesses are like the backbone of the economy, but small businesses are the backbone of the community. Mm -hmm. And so that's, they have to work together to support mm -hmm. each other. We're not competing with each other. We want the economy to be strong. We want the communities to be strong. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole thing. It's a nonprofit. Um, we just did a press conference. That's what I sent you, our press conference before I came here, um, announcing me as the new incoming president. But also we've launched our website and we have all of our intellectual property and we're giving it away for free. So we put our money where our mouth is um, this all started out as a for part of a for-profit company. This was social distance management was the name of the company and uh, Ed Henry, um, the Ed Henry company. This is all their intellectual property and they're donating all this intellectual property to small businesses essential. And we're taking these resources and giving them to people, um, because we gotta, we gotta do something. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, yeah, this is one of my passions. This is empowering people. Mm -hmm. I've used volleyball. I've used, I've had a record label, a nightclub, you know, a restaurant, uh, my own coaching businesses, an entertainment company. So I've always been entrepreneurial and had businesses, helped start three nonprofit organizations. This will be the fourth that I'm really involved with. Um, so, yeah, just taking all those skills and transferring them to um, to make an impact. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, this is what I, so what I believe is we all have some special gift. Mm -hmm. Some are big, some are small, whole and complete. Mm -hmm. These aren't just theories, right? So all of us are part of the whole. Mm -hmm. And it takes the sum of all of us to make the planet whole. So people think, and I hear people say this, you know, you tell them what you do, oh, you know, Olympic coach, get to go here and travel, or, oh, do you need somebody to go with you? What a wonderful job, all this, or, or you talk about the Olympics, and they're like, uh, oh, what I do is not as, not as big as what you do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is your life. This mm -hmm. is just what I do. What you do is what you do. Mm -hmm. The people it impacts is the people that it impacts. And I think when we all approach life in this way, being who we are, contributing our gifts, not settling for a life that somebody else says we have to have or talking ourselves out of living our dreams and being our true selves because, oh, I, be realistic, get a real job. You know, if you can take your passions and monetize them, mm -hmm. and whatever that looks like for you, then you can live that thing instead of thinking it's some hobby or something you have to put on a shelf and you can't do because you have to take care of your family. I think that's what it's about. I think everybody has a gift to contribute. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of talking people out of living their dreams, we should be helping them contribute their gifts. You should help be helping them to live their dreams and then make a living out of it. That's it. Mm -hmm. And then, because then people are thriving. Mm -hmm. They're doing what they're great at. They're doing what they're here, what their purpose is. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's, it's higher purpose. And the money exchange, if they're offering value, that's the law of reciprocation. So I'm offering value, I get remunerated in the mm -hmm. exact proportion that, you know, I provide value. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You provide a lot of value, get a lot of remuneration. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. So, yeah, that's where my passion is. And one of the tools I use is uh, my Champions Map. Mm -hmm. And that's my, it's my Olympic mapping program, but. Yeah, we hadn't had time yeah. to go. Uh, We're not going to go into cause it. Because you say you use it both yeah. for business and also for the Olympic teams. And it's just a holistic mapping program. And it has to be holistic or it's not sustainable. And that's really the guts of it. It's really, it's goal setting, but for every aspect of your life, underpinned by legacy with higher purpose. So a successful fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it, but it's, but it's, uh, everything is quantified. Like it's, there's no, when you're doing Olympic sport and um, you're working with governments, this is government funding. Mm -hmm. So like in Canada, for example, I've got six stakeholders that I have to answer to, you know, uh, every year you have a meeting, three hour meeting, they go through your whole program, they pull it apart, all year long you have an advisor, they're scrutinizing the program, everything has to be justified, has to be evidence-based. This isn't amateur stuff, this is, mm -hmm. you know, Olympics and this is working with government funds, so everything has to be quantified. and. Um, Yeah, and, and we work in four-year blocks. So I've got to have my planning done for four, eight, 12 years. And you don't even know what's happening, so all the forecasting. So taking all that technology and put it into this that people can just use for their everyday life mm -hmm. and living, you know, taking their passions and their purpose and incorporating it into their careers mm -hmm. and what they do. And then when it comes to resource allocation, You got to look at all the areas of your life, your health, your family, your own mental well-being, your career, your finances, you know, what you're different, uh, your spiritual. Because if you don't take care of all those, if you don't nurture all those areas, they'll decay. Mm -hmm. And you'll be having performance and then the thing that's decaying will, will be Performance falls. Yeah. yeah. So to me, this is all high performance. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's my Olympic program and it's gotten me to five Olympics and some pretty good results, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So it's pretty mad. It's not my process. It's like this uh, divine thing. Yeah. That, um, yeah, it makes sense. That championship map uh, connects very well with something we talked about before, which was having the higher purpose yeah. for... and. Uh, One thing I was about to say back then in the beginning of this podcast was uh, I recognized that like I'm, who am I? I'm just a fucking guy that started playing this sport. And, you know, I sucked. Uh, I just had this idea. It would be amazing to have a podcast to meet people and yeah. connect. And yeah, okay, I found this niche. No one's apparently doing it. Maybe I'll try it out. Yeah. I just started trying. and And nowadays it's, Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm insignificant, like I'm not good enough for this or whatever, but but it's like I gotta keep going because it's apparently it's working and I'll get better and better and better and it's yeah. it's fucking amazing. So like I said yesterday, like I, I didn't feel like I was, I don't know, maybe good enough to ask you if you wanted to be on the podcast, mm -hmm. but I was like, I'm going to regret it if I don't. Yeah. And I asked and now we're sitting here. Well, that's the thing, <laughs> right? So it's dare to do what you love and, 
and this is the perfect imperfection thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's perfection is you always get yeses, you never mess up, you always know what to do. Who I don't know who that is, but the perfect is you just who you are, how you are. You dare to do it, mm-hmm. and you find a way, and then it, the whole formula comes together and it works, oh. whole and complete. And that's and that's. There's a lot of, that's what I, this, this is the advantage in competition. We do a lot of whole and complete. Whatever it looks like, whole and complete, whole and complete. Get the outcome, get the outcome. We link those outcomes together, it turns into this really big thing. But it's not a big thing. It's just a bunch of little things that come together to form a big thing. Mm-hmm. And the little things are you just being yourself, living life that you love as hard as it gets, it's pleasure, whatever it is. And you do it because it's you. Mm-hmm. The other stuff you can quit on, whatever. But this, like like you asked, right? Yeah. You know what? You you, you couldn't not ask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, if it was something else that wasn't this significant to you, maybe you wouldn't ask. Probably, yeah. Definitely. But this, you had no choice. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what a real commitment does. It does. Even when you don't want to, you don't like it, you, you're like, ah, this thing. But you're so compelled to do it, mm-hmm. you must. It's a must. When you're doing your must, that's your own purpose. Mm-hmm. Oh. You, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you can that's try true. to avoid it and it keeps coming back at you. Oh. How many times I tried to quit volleyball? For two years I didn't coach. <laughs> Here I am again. <laughs> oh, makes sense. You know, it's crazy. It's a must. And it's not even about the volleyball. It's helping people live their dreams, mm-hmm. contribute their gifts to the world. Mm-hmm. These girls, I'm helping them live their dreams and contribute their gifts. When we talk and we do our mental, I came here like mental, the strategic and mental piece. That's why I'm consulting. I'm not coaching the team. I'm here to help the team. And we're talking higher purpose. We're talking about my... Uh, The Maxwell Leadership Bible. Yeah. John C. Maxwell, he's, he's written a lot of books, right? Yeah. He's oh. a huge leadership. Uh, I didn't even know he wrote this book. Actually, a friend of mine turned me on to it. And I haven't read my Bible for a long time. And I studied Buddhism and, uh, for, for a while. And, you know, I looked at the Muslim faith. And, you know, I got the Bhagavad Gita and I got a Quran. I got a, you know, all this stuff, right? But it, to me, it's really about source. It's about connectedness. Um, and a friend of mine told me to go get this book. Now, I didn't want to do it because it's not audible. I like, I like <laughs> all my books are audible now. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I got the book and, and I've been reading it. It's the Bible, right? And, but, but he's got leadership. Um, this is the beautiful thing about this book. <laughs> this is a real book. It's a real Bible. This is the Bible, but then he's got all this stuff here. And whether you're religious or whatever, John C. Maxwell is a leadership uh, expert. And no, uh, and it just so happens these girls are very religious. I wish you guys that are listening to this would be able to see this. <laughs> it's a Bible. It's a real leather brown Bible. But and and so I couldn't have planned it any. Well, no, I couldn't have planned it any more perfectly. Um, and um, and I was just in my personal life. I went to we moved we moved we just sold our house, and so our books we're collecting all our books and which ones we keep and all that sort of stuff. 
I found all my other books, Bhagavad Gita, all this sort of stuff. I can't find my Bible. It was really weird. And I grew up as a Christian. It was really weird. Because I know I at least have like one or two somewhere. I can't find them. I don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. So it was only fitting. And <laughs> the other guy, he doesn't know that I can't find my Bible. No. I just, and I've known him for a while. We're part of a, a men's uh, professional group. And he's like, you need to go get this book. Uh -huh. Leadership Bible. And I didn't want to do it. I resisted. But it's really interesting. Because I read a lot of John Maxwell. I didn't know he did this book. No, I've never heard about it or seen it. It's crazy. And it's uh, crazy. I've had a lot of John C. Maxwell books recommended. To Isn't me. that crazy? Yeah. I never knew it existed. I didn't know he. I didn't even know he was. Religious. This feels like one of those books that are like there's like two on Amazon for like a few hundred bucks, and it's like you can't get, get it. <laughs> it cost me about seventy bucks, I think. Uh, and it was but really they still weird. produce it. Yeah, and apparently they sell a lot of them. So. Uh, yeah, it was just really weird, man. It's just really weird. So I got to take things like that. Because for me, I consider myself to be spiritual, not religious. Mm -hmm. So that's why I look at like a lot of different religions or philosophies or whatever. And uh, But the one, but it was interesting because I haven't, I don't, I haven't picked up a Bible for a long time. And I haven't referred to it, but something was calling me, which was really weird. And yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it was just really weird. And it just so happens. You start every day here, 6 a.m., with devotion. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was, that's just really strange for me to be. So my mental talks, we, we use some stuff out of the Bible because it's resonance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And his leadership stuff is straight up business. Yeah. Business and leadership. Yeah. So I try to take all the the taps that I get from the universe. You know. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing that's right now is what what is it I don't know that I need to know. That's the context I'm trying to live by right now. Because I've been I was controlling and trying to dictate and everything I was um creating was coming from what I already know, some version of what I already know, mm -hmm. which kind of sounds a little bit like insanity. <laughs> but it's more about, um, like Einstein, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. Yeah. And so, you know, what is it? I just need to stop. Stop thinking. Stop trying to create something from what I'm already doing and just, what is it I don't know that I need to know? Mm -hmm. And now it makes me present. Mm -hmm. I can't be looking into the past, what I already know. I can't be predicting into the future. I have to be here observing. What What is it? Mm -hmm. And it's, man, it's opened up the world. Mm -hmm. Like it really has opened up the world because I see things that I didn't see before and opportunities are coming my way that didn't come before. So there's a whole, uh, you know, whole thing scientific reticular activating system and this whole thing that you know works with that but yeah it's weird man <laughs> it's weird life is a journey life is a journey it's uh, a journey we'll see how this part and, goes yeah and i don't know how 
spirituality is such a controversial thing it's uh, some people are going to be like they're going to stop listening and some people are like oh these guys talk know what they're talking about uh, mm. I, my personal so uh, I like beach volleyball I also like life and mm. I like coaching sort of both and uh, my bigger vision is this project is just a part of my life mission in a sense and there's going to be like steps beyond it but it's going to take years before I'm there yeah. uh, but what I like to do is I like to break down things so that it makes sense to people that at the level they are they're at so yeah. in beach volleyball it might be like okay understanding where this player is, what they need to hear now, mm-hmm. and what's the step after that, and that, that and that, and that. Yeah. And uh, with uh, everything that you might or might not call spiritual experiences or practices or, or whatever, like I think everyone knows that sometimes life is magic. Mm-hmm. Like uh, just mm-hmm. amazing things happen. You're very, very happy, whatever it might be. And... Uh, <clears throat> There's certain things that you can reproduce to make that happen more often, mm. and uh, and yeah. and there's like for example, devotion. Uh, that means some sort of intention setting in the morning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so so one thing that like someone who might be skeptical to that, you can break it down on a neuroscience. You know, okay, yeah. you 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 set some momentum towards thinking good good things today, and you do that every morning. Yeah. Well. When you go to traffic, uh, someone, you know, cuts you off or whatever, you're just a few percentages more, uh, <laughs> um, there's just a little bit of a bigger chance that you think that, okay, maybe they were in a rush, maybe yeah. something was more important, you know, rather than you getting run angry. Run them off the road. Exactly. <laughs> you don't run them off the road. Exactly. So there's a little bit more of a chance yeah. for that to happen, which mm-hmm. means that, there's a little bit more of a chance that someone will see like, oh, this guy seems kind of positive. Maybe I should go talk to with him. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little bit more of a chance that that person actually has some sort of information and knowledge that you should get. And then there's a little bit more chance that something just magical happens in your life because of all this chain of events. Because I guess, <laughs> like, I, I sort of think that, yeah. like, happiness is, is sort of a good good starter because it attracts people. Yeah, for uh, sure. I mean, people get caught up on spiritual, like spiritual and religion are totally different. I mean, religion has caused so much pain and drama in the world, uh, war, abuse, you know, separation. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, religion's a man-made thing to, you know, do whatever it's doing, but mostly control yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and manipulate, right? Which is unfortunate, but... Uh, you know, when I say spiritual connectedness, universe, source, just whatever purpose, yeah. whatever that is, the thing that, that there's something that uh, animates us, mm-hmm. you know, that literally gets you, like, makes you alive. Yeah. That's yeah. spirit to me. Yeah. And that, that, that animating force, I think, is connected. We're all connected. In some way, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're not just. Uh, I don't believe that we're just all down here independently bumping up against each other. I think it's like everything else, the universe. It's all whole and complete. So, you know, what's that dance that we're doing? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I don't. There's good or bad about it. It's just. A, it's a dance, and part of that dance is well. Let's see if we can blow ourselves up or. 
let's see how cool I can be with you and uh, all this sort of stuff. Like, and then at the end of it, it's like, you know what? I can be cruel, but I choose not to be. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I can do this. I can be by myself and be in a cave or I can be here with you and we can be having a relationship, you know, and exchanging something here and growing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's spirit at work. Mm -hmm. The spirit, you call it energy. Yeah, yeah. You know, quantum physics. Uh, Whatever it actually is. Yeah. And um, I, don't, I don't deal with every, woo-hoo. I'm not dealing with that. Every, everything that, just like the volleyball, mm -hmm. there's some scientific, people think science and, and spirit, spiritual are in opposition or whatever. I just think science explains spirituality. Yeah, or yeah. spirit, or spirit, or energy, or whatever you want to call it, right? And I think we're getting closer and closer to the sciences that are gonna start explaining these things. Yeah. And like part part of it is like the magic in the quick reaction time. Like it's so fun to play volleyball when those quick reactions yeah. happen. It doesn't feel like it's you. It's it it's kind of an yeah. experience that you can't explain. Yeah. And it's super fucking fun. It makes life yeah. worth li living in a sense. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about like um, meditation. And um, so we're yoga, I've mentioned yoga. He's talking about meditation. So I was just chopping vegetables before I came here and I was meditating. The meditation was the chopping vegetables. It wasn't like I'm chopping vegetables but my mind's off somewhere else meditating. It's like life is a meditation. You know, when you're present, you're fully present, you're, in a med you're meditating. And I think it, we have all these stories about it's this thing that you go off and do. But when you're in the zone, you're in meditation. Mm -hmm. You are fully present in that moment, connected. It's meditation. So anytime that you're really fully present and you're right there, that's meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how we try to go be quiet to do that. We think we're just going to go be quiet and then we're going to be here. Mm -hmm. But... Throughout the day, you're 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 there. Mm -hmm. You're there. You're right in flow, and you're just, you know. And sometimes you can you can you can feel it. You can feel that you're, you know, when you're doing something like just chopping vegetables. You're like, you're experiencing yourself. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As long as the phone isn't throwing notifications at you all the time. <laughs> we, are trying, we are trying to turn ourselves into robots, machines. We are trying to take the human piece out, be mind or whatever we're trying to do. I don't know what we're trying to do, but man, it's crazy. Yeah. It's <laughs> all right, man. Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're do, yeah, we're, oh my God. It's yeah. a lot of a lot, a lot of clock. You gotta chop that up. <laughs> uh, where do people contact you, or do you want contact info? Yeah, here? I mean, it's, yeah. You know what? They can. Uh, the The thing that I'm really looking at right now is this small business is essential. And like I said, we're looking at it like a North American initiative because uh, other people, other places around the world, don't have the same challenges or the same mindset or whatever. So I think this is kind of unique. Um, but if it fits, if, if, if the organization can help anyone in their business, keep their business open, um, be able to take ownership, create community, that's the goal of the organization. Um, it's, it's called Small Business Essential United. Mm -hmm. And the website is SBE, 
for small business essential united.org mm-hmm. so i think go be great to go look that up uh, go look uh steve ando champions map mm-hmm. up on youtube and you'll see the introduction to the champions map it explains what it is i can add links into the show description also yeah and there's my website it's steve anderson gold uh, com. It's, I did the website myself, so it's not professional, but <laughs> I got some professionals working on it, but I don't really tell people about it, but I need to, so I'm telling them yeah. right now. And they can contact me there, and uh, yeah, the the Champions Map piece is something that I've mostly done it for organizations and corporates and uh, executives uh, and entrepreneurs, so people who are into high performance. Um, but my goal is to get it into schools so that everybody, like maps and English and everything else, you learn how to map your life mm-hmm. and to resource it and make it real, not a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my end game with the Champions Map because that's my that's my purpose is to help people mm-hmm. live the life they want to live, contribute their gifts. Well, this Champions Map does that, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, like it, it really does it. Like, it's re- yeah, it's 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 there's no way to explain what it does, but um, yeah. So yeah, check awesome. out check out the website, check out the map. Small business is essential. Awesome. Yeah. And if someone contacts you for volleyball coaching, then you don't have time, or <laughs> you know, it's I don't know, man. It's interesting. It depends on who it is. I mean, here I am. That's true. Here, yeah. you know. They put a few hours into this. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, it's interesting. What I need to do is, and I've been meaning to and trying to, and I've never done it. I was trying to, not hard, but um, you know, a website. Just finish like a website. I don't know if it's a membership community or what it is, but uh, create some content. Mm-hmm. Like create real content. Do it in a series. Um, do it as courses. I've started the stuff. I've looked at Podia account, and you know, I was like, started looking at the YouTube videos and how to get it, you know, the YouTube and uh, all the stuff, and you know, Teachable, and you know, yeah, it's the universe. <laughs> yeah, but now it's about actually doing the work because this stuff is there. It's like lives here. I want to. I've got a book. I wrote this book. Challenge makes a champion. 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. I didn't release it because there was some issues with me working with Volleyball Canada and um, promoting this book. But now I'm gonna rewrite it and release it. And the the book I want to write on volleyball is actually called the book on beach volleyball. Mm-hmm. And um, and I want to take this stuff and unpack it and document it so that people can read it, use it, go. Do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotta get around that. Working on another book right now called "The Six Dimensions of Success" uh, with a writing partner in Australia. So, the books and the speaking—that's I think that's uh, a big piece. But COVID's now. Yeah, that's where my focus was going. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, speaking and working on the books and consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, volleyball, I could do some volleyball. I, I would like to consult with programs. I want to help lift the sport up. And mm-hmm. I really like to get professional leagues going. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, you said you started tried to start rolling with someone. We didn't ever twice go in into Australia. that. And... I looked at it once in Canada, um, but literally twice, twice in Australia, um, trying to get a professional league going. We had a venue built, sold the television. Um, yeah, had a merchandise, centralized merchandising program, all the stuff. Um, couldn't get all the players on board, you know, mm -hmm. politics. And, uh, and then in Canada, we had an investor who was looking at it. Um, I didn't take it to the Federation because, um, you know, we, our values needed to match a little better. Mm -hmm. They didn't. And at the end of the day, um, yeah, the investors, uh, they, the values didn't match. So it was unfortunate. But I think there's a league, man. There's a there's professional product, domestic professional product where people can have a career. Mm -hmm. Coaches can coach, administrators can make a living. There's clubs, there's athletes. People have salaries, like real employment benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's a real career path. That's, mm -hmm. The piece that's missing is this professional piece. We have the Olympic piece at the top. Mm -hmm. There's a piece that should be right underneath it. Mm -hmm. And when you look at indoors, what do you see? You see professional leagues. People mm -hmm. can be professionals. We can't be professionals and make a real living in most places around the world. Mm -hmm. You can make some money and you can play, and some people can make a living. But yeah. every other professional sport, you got two or three levels of leagues that can make a living. You know, you got the big league where they're making big money, then you got some league under that where Maybe they have a job, but they're still making good money. And, oh. You know, whether it's volleyball or soccer or whatever, basketball. Mm -hmm. Not volleyball, not beach. Mm -hmm. oh. Indoors, even we do, but not beach. Oh. Oh. So it's a shame because as a product, it's huge. Mm -hmm. Just pacing is huge. Oh. We just don't have a, um, a framework. Yeah. I... Uh wrote a blog post about this I'm wondering if it's the the fact that so uh, golf mm. there's a lot of equipment yeah people want to get better so they go and buy better right. equipment so the brands have a lot of money right. that they can throw at the competitions which mean, then means that professionals can make money out of the sport yeah. beach volleyball doesn't have so much equipment there's basically a ball but yeah. that's basically it like there's some net stuff but you can buy that in bulk or yeah. together with other people so I'm wondering if that's like a root cause. I've been having this conversation for about 20 plus years, maybe 25. Our product are the people. Yeah. So uh, we had a team called uh, Team LM, which was uh, LM Investments in Australia. They, uh, they committed to about 1.5 million or so to uh, this one team. And it was based off this sort of theory that I created. And... Uh, yeah, everybody was salaried. They pay for the. There, there's a model out there where people can um, make a living at this. It's not the current. It's not the sponsorship model. Okay. And um, you know, so we let's call it corporate ambassadorship. There's a there's a way to structure this so that there's value for organizations that's not marketing. Okay. And you have to help them uh, in their core business. So they have to make money in their core business and it has to be trackable and measurable. Yeah. So if you can fit that criteria where um, they can spend money they're gonna invest anyway. So for example, everybody does professional development. 
leadership training, all that sort of stuff. Well, why couldn't their own team of athletes, corporate ambassadors, why couldn't that budget go to them to provide those services to the organization um, through corporate ambassadorship instead of outsourcing? They got the money, the budget. That's not marketing. It's not a marketing budget. It comes from different departments. It will be professional development, training, you know, leadership, all that sort of stuff, uh, team building, just events. There's tons of money in companies that's not marketing dollars, but we keep going after the marketing dollar, as competitive as it is, and here's the worst part about it. You can't own, if you're an investor, you can't own an athlete's image or uh, title. Mm -hmm. So what happens? You invest your money into sponsorship, building up this person's image and title, then what do they do? They dump you, they go to your competitor or some other mm -hmm. organization. It's a volatile, flaky investment. But there's ways to protect it. No competition clauses, all sorts of stuff where you protect your investment and athletes can come and go and you still have something of value, mm -hmm. uh, a, a separate entity that you own. Um, that people can come in and service. And it's, like I said, you have to make money in your core business and it has to be measurable and trackable. And if it's not measurable and trackable, then you can only sponsor something for two or three years before you have to change your strategy. Like the recovery and the response, the system itself creates the problem. Mm -hmm. So you give me your marketing dollars to sponsor me. I can't show you how you're making money doing that how long can you continue this strategy before you have to try something else mm -hmm. it's a setup but if i can quantify it if i can track it and measure it and i can show you where you're making money especially in your own core business so you're not doing something else not creating other income streams the business you do like shoe company michael jordan they're selling shoes they can measure it they can track it it's got his brand on it they know how many air jordans they sell and you're right. So, but we can influence. But here's the problem: all the, the national governing bodies, the international governing bodies, they all wanted to be the premier brand. Mm -hmm. But that's not how sports did it. Mm -hmm. The did the NBA make Michael Jordan, or did Michael Jordan make the NBA? Like when you think about, and I'm not just talking about Michael Jordan and Nike, but the smart thing that the NBA and all these other sports have done, the NBA did it really well. They allow these other companies to invest their marketing dollars in these individuals who play in their league. Mm -hmm. The NBA didn't invest all these marketing dollars into Michael Jordan. Nike did that. Mm -hmm. Nike made Michael Jordan a superstar. Where he played a basket, the NBA allowed him to be a basketball star in the NBA, but Nike made him a superstar. Mm -hmm. Someone who can influence where you spend your money. And what do companies care about? Do they care about Michael Jordan being the, the MVP and the point scorer? Or do they care about the number of shoes they sell? At the end of the day, it's business. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to influence sales. And that's what we don't do. Mm -hmm. we, we don't make the connection. Mm -hmm. And most people don't even know who the national governing bodies are. And they don't care. They don't know who works. Who cares that the national governing body is the big brand? No. Who influences the, the, the purchaser? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, that's your money. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a product, you're right. So the product is our people.
but we, mm-hmm. don't, we don't promote our people. What superstars do we have? And by superstar, I mean, we have a few, but people who outside of the sport know them and are influenced by them. Mm-hmm. Look at Michael Schumacher, yeah. Roger Federer. People don't have to play tennis to, you know, be influenced by these people. Mm-hmm. That's right. Michael Jordan. I don't play basketball. I'm wearing my Nikes. Got my Air Jordans. Oh. That's that's what we need to be creating. But that's uh that's not the strategy. So it's, it's sponsorship, it's media impressions, it's, it's you know branding, it's you know same old same old, which at one point was good more beer and cigarettes. Uh huh. Um. Because they could track it and measure it. We're gonna sell some beer and cigarettes here. Oh. And when we got away from the lifestyle sponsors, we we didn't. This the the model didn't match. Like the lifestyle companies, they did their own. Uh, they serviced themselves, and they measured and tracked it. So we didn't have to do it. We just mm-hmm. have to show, associate. But now, when you're with the bank or his, you gotta, you gotta. There's some activation. You gotta service that thing, yeah. and you gotta create some numbers and show them. You got YouTube channel. You know, you gotta have some metrics. No metrics. Where's the money coming from? Mm-hmm. You don't know. So for some reason, we I don't know. It's like we think we don't need metrics, and just because people watch the sport, you should give us money. Why yeah. not convert those people watching into customers? Then you're starting to get somewhere. Got to have some influence. Mm-hmm. People, this is not rocket science. You got twelve-year-old <laughs> kids doing this stuff on TikTok and YouTube. Who, a sixteen-year-old girl who's making over six figures, uh, doing TikTok videos. Yeah. Not even at a high school. And she just went to New York or something, got a, a deal, uh, like a sponsorship deal with Nike or something crazy, 16 years old, doing TikTok videos. Mm-hmm. She knows she has to influence people. She knows how to convert them into customers. Oh. What's up with us? <laughs> <laughs> she be hiring her. You know yeah. How do we convert these people into customers yeah. and measure it? Yeah. She did it. She's 16. Yeah. His YouTube videos will tell you how to do it. Mm-hmm. For some reason, we still own the old golf and tennis sponsorship models of where we started. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I don't get it. Oh. Serious. My 12-year-old is thinking about doing this stuff. <laughs> Seriously. He's, he's, getting, he's getting all this information. He knows he needs metrics. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Getting distracted here by this yeah. technology that is... Yeah. Saying that there's, we're almost out of battery. Ah, oh, it's all good, man. I gotta go to bed too. Yeah, we should. It's after midnight, so. This has been fucking beyond amazing. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, man. <laughs> thanks for asking, you, man. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, I, hope I did. That we'll see who listens to this. Maybe someone that yeah. picks up. And now there is your contact info and all of that, so. Yeah. Well, this is and this is this is where I'm moving to now. Now that I'm not coaching volleyball um, with a, like an organization, um, this is where I'm moving. It's really promoting higher purpose and and promoting my brand. 
had this book since 2013, 2014. Is that, can people buy that? Yeah, Amazon. Uh, Kindle? I don't promote it because... Is there a Kindle version? Or? I think there's a Kindle version, yeah. yeah. But um, I brought it with me because I need to reread it and rewrite it. Uh-huh. It's pretty... Um, it wasn't the book I wanted to write. Okay. People people read it and they say it's a good book, but I don't. it's not the book I wanted to write. More stories, more anecdotes. I had a business coach and he kind of kicked this book out of me. Which okay. is a great thing, but um, but this the challenge makes the champion. That is my life philosophy. It is mm-hmm. the challenge that makes the champion. People think they're boring. You're not boring, champion. No. You're built. Mm-hmm. Even people with great advantages and talent and everything, the ones who are sustained excellence, they are built. They build themselves. Mm-hmm. Nobody just shows up with talent and has a great career. <laughs> That's the way it works. No. Challenge makes a champion, man. Yeah. That's the yeah. way it is. Oh, well, you can just get halfway with, with the talent, but you're not going to make it all the way. That's right. That's... It's frustrating. <laughs> no, it, it also down. makes life worth living. Like, we need to have a. It's, you know, it's, it's a game. It's, yeah. it's fun to be challenged. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, let's call it an episode. All right. <laughs> Almost four and a half hours. There you go. <laughs> this good. one is the longest I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. <laughs> okay. It's awesome. Uh, if, uh, yeah, let's see. If listeners have any questions, then send, put them in the comments or send them my way or, yeah. or whatever. And then we'll see what happens in the future. Cool. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Woohoo. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> uh, apparently. So that was uh, apparently what a interview can be like when you let a beach volleyball nerd like me um, <laughs> go crazy with uh, uh, an Olympic coach like Steve. And uh, when you get into the groove. I hope that you have uh, enjoyed this interview and that these four and a half hours have been well worth your time. It's, um, I'm gonna, I'm not, I haven't checked this up, but I'm pretty sure that this is the longest podcast interview in the beach volleyball world to date. <laughs> so got to break some records here. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's, it's funny. A long interview can be both good and bad because obviously if it's too long like it's some people might not feel like listening to something that's too long but at the same time the longer it is the more time you have to deliver value and i think that steve did that in in this episode so i hope you don't feel like you've been robbed by your time but that you're actually stoked that there's someone out there making this in-depth long form podcasts about beach volleyball and really going into the details of it so uh here's the thing steve is a legend of this sport uh but uh this interview i think uh, partly thanks to this interview having happened i did get um, kent steffes onto the podcast the original gold medal winner he won the first um Olympic beach volleyball gold with uh, Karch Kirai. Uh, so I got him on the podcast and uh, that's going to be the next episode. So it's just like good things to lead, lead to good things. 
and uh, I'm gonna tell you that that episode is amazing too so you it's another one that you absolutely don't want to miss the craziest thing is that uh, lo and behold that episode is also four and a half hours like I don't know it's it's crazy (laughs) I hope people don't get scared about the length of this podcast but the amount of value that that Kent sat down and dropped at me is also just uh, mind-blowing Kent is a competitive guy (laughs) he talks a lot about competitiveness Uh, in the end we did the clock and I think he actually ran for four hours and 35 minutes just to (laughs) just to beat (laughs) (laughs) beat steve so there's (laughs) there's some competitiveness for you uh so i hope this uh, this episode is the is the record but that record might get broken very soon when i drop the drop the next episode on the learn beachful fast podcast anyway I hope that you have enjoyed this. If you have any, uh, you know, Steve did did say like, hey, let's do this again. So if you have any thoughts or questions for me or for Steve or conversations or topics that you would like to hear us talk about, why don't you just drop them in the comments for this uh, for this episode? And maybe if we're lucky, we can make that happen one day. So uh, podcasts don't have comments, but I'll do what I usually do, which is This episode is also on YouTube, so in the podcast uh, description, I will drop the link to the YouTube video of this same episode, and on YouTube, there is a comment section. So basically, just go and find this exact very episode on YouTube, and then you can comment there, and we can even have conversations in that comment field. All right, I think that was it. I mean, as always, uh, subscribe to everything, subscribe to the to the podcast, the YouTube channel. Uh, you don't want to miss this stuff that's com- upcoming. And uh, please tell your other volleyball nerd friends about uh, the podcast, the YouTube channel, this episode, uh, whatever you find valuable, because I don't know, it's just the more this thing grows, the easier it becomes to me to create these really valuable pieces of content for you. Uh, so it's just a win-win for everyone. The more the more of these high-profile legends I get on the podcast, the easier it becomes for me to get more of them onto the podcast. Uh, the more subscribers there is, the easier it becomes for me to to make videos. And, you know, it's just this uh, upwards loop. And the more you guys help me, the more I can help you guys. And we can just create this uh, epic project together. Uh, learn Beach Volvo Fast. I'm all about being open-minded and really looking at the nitty-gritty of how to learn this sport uh, faster, better. And I tried to avoid some confusion. Um, I was myself very frustrated when I started playing the sport because coaches would say different things about things, you know, how to pass. Like one coach would say something, another coach would say something else. I was confused. The coaches didn't usually tell me why they believed why they believed. So it was impossible or difficult for me to sort of figure out what I should believe in and whatnot so I'm just here to try to bring some change to that and bring some light to some of the mysteries of beach volleyball that I haven't been able to find any answers to from other coaches I've done a lot of research and and thinking and trying and experimenting myself and I believe I have found answers that I haven't been able to find anywhere else taught by anyone 
and this project is here to bring this kind of stuff into the light for hopefully a brighter future for for beach volleyball where the skills aren't such mysteries anymore but there's actually good explanations of how to learn the stuff that makes you a good beach volleyball player so any help anything you know subscribing sharing the word everything uh, hiring me as a coach whatever buying my courses everything just helps with this and uh, it will just uh, help us all because it will bring this project to light and to reality faster all right thanks for listening have a good one and uh, see you soon in the next episode <laughs> don't miss the one with ken it's amazing all right talk to you later bye <laughs>